Welcome to the Sourdough Podcast. We are your hosts, Jay and Ashley. We're coming to you from our log cabin studio, formerly known as our living room, on our farm here in Western Montana. Want to do the introduction? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, So, welcome. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today. We're super excited for this conversation. We've been. We feel like it's finally what we've been really working toward in this podcast. um, Really bringing in some expertise to help us dive deeper into all the things that we're researching that we want to share with our community. Uh, So it's great to have you here today. But um, I will introduce you to all of those folks that are hopefully listening today. Um, Today, we have Roger Moore joining us on the podcast. He is or was a staff scientist at the NIH. um, Retired National Institute of Health. National Institute of Health. That's right. Um, and that was here in Hamilton, Montana. And uh, he retired back in November of 2021, but spent about 10 years in that role as staff scientist um, with a dissertation in phosphate protecting groups for use in drug design. Uh, basic synthetic chemistry, I'm told this is. <laughs> I think I'll be doing a lot of learning myself today. And prior to that, he was doing his postdoc work with the NIH as well. Mm-hmm. Same yeah. lab. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I think we'll dive into today's conversation. Yeah. Well, just uh, a warm up. Um, we're going to be speaking to a microbiologist next week, and we're going to ask the same question to to him as well. But uh, I've had this not conundrum, but just thought in my head for a while now, trying to understand and figure out at what point does chemistry turn into what is considered a living organism. And do you kind of understand that question? It's a bit of a hard question to... Well, I I guess, um, I mean, when you think of chemistry, a living organism is chemistry, right? Chemistry in motion. Almost like when you take something like algebra and then you progress to calculus and and you have math in motion, you know, you almost have a living organism as chemistry in motion, you know? Um, So all these organic reactions... 3,000 reactions or so going all at the same time in a particular cell, all trying to strive towards equilibrium, but not quite getting there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, pretty fascinating. So, yeah, Yeah. I mean, we're composed of chemistry for sure. Yeah. So, you know, because say we start with with nitrogen, N2 gas, that's, we would, I think it's safe to consider that that is not a living organism. But as we add nitrogen to, say, nucleic acids, and then it gets folded into proteins and DNA, at what point does, say, a a specific protein become something that we consider as a cell or a living organism? I don't know. People have discussed that for ages, you know, and a lot of people say, well, if something eats and poops, then it's alive. (laughs) That's about what it becomes, you know, and other people say, well, if there's some self-awareness... Yeah, you know, like we as humans mm-hmm. have, then that is what constitutes life. So I don't you know. You sure humans a... have self awareness, <laughs> <laughs> or are we just like bacteria in a petri dish overrunning yeah. the planet? Yeah, I don't yeah. know. But um, well, are, are you know you people know, argue about that point that you're bringing up? Are bacteria mm-hmm. self aware? They're certainly aware of their surroundings, right? And they dictate what they do based upon the environment surrounding them. 
Well, you know, it's it's amazing. Bacteria colonies, you know, part of your microbiome and everything. And it's almost like when you come with antibiotics or something like that, and then they regenerate and they become antibiotic resistant. And it's almost like they have a strategy, like they have council meetings and they're thinking about how to circumvent anything that you're doing. And they yeah. have a strategy for survival, for sure. So, yeah. I mean, if you call that self-awareness, I suppose, yeah, I suppose that's possible maybe their council meeting is when because bacteria can freely and we're talking about microbiology now you're a chemist so we'll maybe move on here in a minute <laughs> but uh bacterial colonies they can actually um send out i think it's either rna or dna um to the surrounding colony of bacteria so say if one gets um hit with antibiotics they, or some sort of environmental pressure, they can change their replication of their DNA to help them either stave off a pathogenic fungi that's coming to destroy the colony or whatever else. So right, maybe right. that's their council meeting. Absolutely. So <laughs> I guess what you're getting at, are they actually thinking about that or is they, are they just certain responses and so many of them die off, but then yeah. some of them survive and those who survive, you know, live to the next generation and yeah. propagate and become stronger i guess yeah. yeah yeah the only reason i really bring that up as well is um it's just something that i think people don't understand is chemistry and we don't really see it i mean sometimes we see the physical representations of it as i'm looking at you right now but we don't really understand what's happening on the inside when it comes to this chemistry especially organic chemistry and that's why we brought you in one of the main reasons we brought you in is for people to have a better understanding hopefully after this conversation about what chemistry does to the body how it affects soil life and just how it affects our everyday lives mm-hmm. yeah well and i think that's a good time to take a quick little step back and dive a bit into your background roger um maybe you can tell us just a little bit about yourself where you're from and i'm curious why chemistry <laughs> Where that, ooh, you okay? <laughs> uh, where that interest came from, and I'll let you take it away. <laughs> All right. Well, I I've been in the Bitter Valley, Bitterroot Valley, for about twenty years now. So as a retired scientist, like you said, but before that, um, if you go early back, I grew up in southern New Mexico, a place called Las Cruces, New Mexico, mm-hmm. in the desert. Yeah. And by the way, that's an awesome ecosystem down there. I mean, you got people don't think there's much life in the desert, but that's not true. There's all kinds of, you know, different plants that you've never mm-hmm. seen before and very specific and stuff like that. So anyway, so I, I grew up down there and I had a, you know, my first real job other than being the paper boy or, or whatever was at this place called White Sands Missile Range. And I was a computer operator out there. And White Sands Missile Range is very nearby White Sands National Park, which is the largest gypsum deposit in the world. So it's kind of a cool environment down there. And as a computer operator, I remember we <clears throat> people used to still, they used to transcribe information. This was military type information. And they'd transcribe it on key punch cards. Mm-hmm. And then we were entering the phase where we could save that on tapes. And so we had to have these big buildings where we'd save that information on tapes in buildings with no windows because, you know, the Russians could be looking in (laughs) at any time. And so there's that and everything. And then so I went to uh, 
up to Albuquerque and lived there for a while. And I got a master's degree in exercise physiology. Okay. That was my, I guess, idealistic fantasy to, to work with elite athletes and things like that. And I didn't get all the way there. I had some jobs where I was working with older men that had had heart attacks. Okay. And, um, you know, hooking them up to EKGs and stuff like that. And then designing diets and exercise programs and everything. So, but anyway, the whole time though, I was thinking, well, we don't really have a very deep understanding of chemistry here. Kind of what you were alluding to just a few minutes ago. Right. And I was like, ah, you know, I feel like I have a PE degree, but I don't feel like I really understand the chemistry behind this and the biochemistry and all that. So I went, um, to a place called the University of Akron, it's in Ohio, and I um, got a PhD in, in organic chemistry, synthetic chemistry. And so what I did there was worked a lot with um, masking, what they call masking groups for phosphate molecules. So a lot of nucleotides are, um, they're phosphate molecules. And they're very water-soluble, but they're not very fatty-soluble, so they don't get into the cell. So back then, there were these drugs called AZT and D4T, Hmm. and they were highly toxic, still highly toxic and stuff. And part of the reason was that you had to give a really big dosage of them to get them into the cell. And they just weren't you know, because the cell membranes are, you know, fatty soluble, they're phospholipids. And and so the dosages were toxic. So there's a whole field there. And I guess there's still that field where you mask, you make protecting groups for the phosphorus. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes more fatty soluble or whatever properties you want, you know, depending on what kind of protection group you put on there, you, you protect the phosphorus and then it gets in the cell with a lot lower dosage. And then when it, once it gets in the cell, you want it to come off and be Mm non-toxic and, and that kind of chemistry. So did you get to the point where it became non-toxic once those masking groups were released off of the nucleotides, once they got into the, the cell? I don't know. I wasn't involved in the drug design. I was more um, synthesis. Okay. I know they took some of my compounds and did um, in vitro, in in vitro meaning test tube type Mm -hmm. experiments where they did antiviral activity with them. And in fact, you could use lower dosages with some of these protecting groups Mm -hmm. and um, had higher antiviral activity and so forth. But I was never in the pharmaceutical part of it, just kind of in the synthetic part. So yeah. That's what I did. And then and then I was a postdoc at um, different places. And, and I worked in organic chemistry for a long time. But um, at all these different labs, they seemed like a very toxic environment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd come home smelling like ethyl acetate and hexanes every day. Yeah. My breath smelled like <laughs> it, you know. And Your breath smelled like it. Yeah. So we did, back then, we used to separate in a very low tech way we'd separate compounds using flash column chromatography mm-hmm. using hexanes and ethyl acetate and ethyl acetate if you know that fingernail polish mm, smell yeah, yeah. And hexanes is kind of like gasoline but a lower molecular weight version of that you okay. know hydrocarbon yeah and so you know you just breathe that all day and then being in an organic lab very often was um, like having a bunch of roommates that never washed their dishes <laughs> <laughs> except it's, it's 
except if it, instead of dirty plates, it was like food residue, you know, toxic chemicals and stuff. <laughs> so, um, so I got a job at the University of Toledo that was biochemistry okay. related. So this guy was an enzymologist that I worked for there. And what's and the was, study of that? Enzymolo- enzymology. enzymology. So he, he'd, um, sometimes he purified different enzymes and run the reactions in vitro to see, you know, what kind of substrates might make the reaction go faster or slower okay. and um, evaluate competitive inhibitors and stuff. And then yeah. he got into crystallography. So you had to purify proteins to be a crystallographer. So okay. that was my angle. Uh, at first, the biochemistry was like, what the heck are these guys talking about? You know, it was <laughs> a little confusing. This is different. They got a different lingo. And I, I'm like the guy that doesn't know what they're talking about. So, <laughs> But you just kind of suffer through it and learn what you need to learn. Yeah. And I wound up being the protein purification guy. Okay. And what does that um, mean when you're purifying protein? Well, a lot of times to crystallize, or most of the time when you crystallize a protein so that you can look at its structure, um, you have to purify it first mm-hmm. as pure as possible. And that's not always easy to do. Some proteins you'll never purify and others are very easy. Yeah. But So what you'd do is you'd express that gene typically in an E. coli bacteria k12 e coli harmless e coli but what you would do is you'd stick the gene in the e coli as a plasmid yeah you know as a little piece of dna in there and then you'd kind of trick the bacteria into expressing that protein okay and, and then make once, that protein yeah and then you'd lyse the cells and everything and you'd isolate that protein and then you'd purify usually by some types of chromatography yeah yeah. And this is the precursor then to just actually study that protein? Yeah, or? so you get the pure protein, and, and the crystallographers would come up to you with a straight face and say, okay, I need 10 milligrams per milliliter concent- with high concentration, and I need it 99.999% pure, and I need this, you know, and I'm like, okay. In some cases, that's asking a lot. In some yeah. cases, that's possible. But anyway, so that was, that was my job. I was the protein purification guy, and that's... Um, you know, that's how I got to Rocky Mountain Labs. There was a gentleman that worked with Group A Streptococcus at, mm-hmm. at the NIH facility there. Yeah. And he had something like 1,300 strains of Group A Streptococcus. I mean, just a, a bunch of nasty stuff, you know. And, These are the bacteria uh, that cause strep, at least some of those streptococcus yeah, yeah. strains. Yeah, yeah. So some of the common bacteria that cause strep. But it, also there's um, one of the strains causes necrotizing fasciitis, you know, the flesh-eating flesh disease eating that you've yeah. heard about. Well, that's actually a strain of group A streptococcus. Mm. So, oh, interesting. Anyway, so I got there to the NIH, and that was my first job as a postdoc, is purifying proteins mm. for possible vaccine candidates for, you know, against group A streptococcus. And, yeah. and that was tough because, um, I don't know, those are usually group um, gram positive type bacteria and the E. coli that I had experience with was a gram negative. So sometimes it was difficult to express those proteins and Mm -hmm. purify them and anything. But anyway, so it was a good, it was a good job and everything. And then the, the PI, the investigator of that lab, not long after I got there, he said, Hey, I'm moving to Houston. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, Oh no, I'm not. There's no way that I'm leaving Montana. 
to go to Houston. Nothing against Houston if there's anybody out there from yeah. Houston. But, um, it's a little bit so of a what I did as a postdoc, I just knocked on every lab door. I said, do you need somebody? I don't care what you study, bacteria, viruses, <laughs> what, I don't care. I just need a job, you know. Um, and finally, I knocked on the prion door. And they needed somebody, so that's where I've been with at, at the NIH for close to twenty years, I guess, yeah. about nineteen years working with the prion group over there. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I did. So prions. Sorry like, for the long answer. No, no we love great. long answers. <laughs> so prions. What are prions? Prions are an interesting kind of thing, and you think I'd know what prions are by now. I studied them for a lot of years. Um, they're kind of an interesting area in in biochemistry. They're infectious proteins, mm -hmm. right? And so prions act like a virus in the sense that they can infect people with different strain characteristics, and it can be titered. In other words, you know, a higher dosages or you know, give a higher infectivity and stuff okay. like that. But, um, but there's no apparent virus. And the field now, I think the consensus is, is there's no virus. It's just a protein that misfolds into an infectious conformation. And that conformation is pathogenic mm -hmm. and toxic. But it's the conformation, the shape of that protein that makes it infectious and that gives it strain characteristics. Hmm. So that's the weird thing about prions. It's kind of like this odd little air, orphan area in science, but yeah. it's always been a fascinating question for scientists. So so some of the examples of, of prion diseases that we some people out there will likely know or mad cow disease which is also what creutzfeldt jakob disease is that right well mad cow disease was something that happened in cattle mm -hmm. okay so there's a whole history there where they were feeding they meaning the um i guess the agricultural whatever unit in, yeah. in england they were feeding cattle meat and bone meal in other words From they cattle were, from cattle. Yeah. Yeah. And probably sheep or whatever, you know, yeah. it could have come from sheep scrapie, which has been around for hundreds of years, but, um, they were feeding the cattle, this tainted meat, basically enforced cannibalism. And then it turns out some of the cattle became very, you know, myoclonic jerking and sick and, and died. And people were like, what the heck is going on here? But it was mad. They called it mad, mad cow, cow disease. But it was actually a prion neurological disease. Yeah. That. Um, well, anyway, and so there's versions in different species, like humans. The Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease yeah. you may have heard of, mm -hmm. or CJD. Yep. Is probably it, it is the most common one in humans, mm -hmm. and um, that's kind of what I was studying while I was there. Primarily the this type of prion. That type of prion, Creutzfeldt-Jakob yeah. disease, yeah. So I, I spent yeah. a lot of time with, you know, those those types of yeah. tissues and analyzing them. And and for any hunters out there who have heard of CWD, which is chronic wasting disease, that's another encephalopathy, I think is how you say it. Well, right? the, the official term is transmissible spongiform encephalopathy right. <laughs> it just rolls off your tongue it sure does <laughs> clearly and so the CWD. reason that 
it got that name is because there was spongiform tissue. Uh, the brain tissue would become like Swiss cheese mm-hmm. and, uh, full yeah. of spongiform holes in yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the cabbage that you were showing me outside with the holes and all the leaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a neurological a degenerative disease in a way, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. I, I mean, it is. Yeah. It yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so anyway, uh, chronic wasting disease um that affects deer mm-hmm. and elk and stuff like that in north america so, cervids, right and then the obvious question that gets asked is it contagious to humans and the answer appears to be no not yet as far as we know it doesn't tra- you know like if you're a hunter and you eat tainted meat yeah um there are no you're fine. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One but, of my and and same thing with sheep. Sheep scrapie has been around for many many years, like three or four hundred years ago is when the first writings of it were discovered. Oh, okay. And one of my favorite. There's a research article by this guy, and and in there, I like to quote him sometime. He says, "I have eaten sheep scrapie meat, and I can discern no discernible difference," <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. Right? And it was like. That guy's brave, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, that's also I, N of one so far in his study. N of one, and he was fine yeah. as far as we know. I mean, he may have, maybe he died from Alzheimer's or CJD when he got old. Who yeah. knows? But um, anyway, so like I said, sheep scrape. He's been around for years. No, it doesn't really transmit to humans. But somehow, when the cattle got it, there were some human transmissions mm-hmm. you know okay. and as far as i know it's about 300 so far out of probably millions of exposures yeah. to, to the tainted meat i think i'm looking right here it says there have been about 350 cases per year in the u.s of cjd oh okay yeah well cjd that that's okay so oh, we're talking about um, something, a different well with the mad cow epidemic there were some that were actually in the tainted meat from the cattle were uh, infectious units to people. Yeah, to people. Yeah. Now with, so they called it variant Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But with Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease or CJD, it just happens. Yeah. It's called sporadic, which means we have no clue. We have no idea. (laughs) It's kind of like most Alzheimer's, I think Mm -hmm. most Alzheimer's cases are sporadic. You don't really know why. Yeah. It happened. I mean, you can point to, you know, crappy diets and, and all this pesticides and herbicides mm-hmm. and stuff in our environment. And that probably doesn't help, I'm no. sure, and, and whatever. But but you can't really predict necessarily if somebody's going to get Alzheimer's. They just do. It happens. Yeah. It's sporadic. And this amyloid beta plaque issue that has come up to recently, I think it was in 2020 when it was released, but the... The individuals that were researching the amyloid beta plaque knew that it wasn't actually related to, at least their conclusions were, that it wasn't related to Alzheimer's disease. But this has been purported and has been used in the Alzheimer's research for the past 25 years as kind of the the predominant understanding of, of Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you hear about that story? Well, there's a lot of controversy in the field. Is Are, are the plaques a downfield symptom? of the disease mm-hmm. or are the plaques the toxic species that causes the neurodegeneration yeah 
and people go back and forth on that. I think the thinking is now you'd have to ask, you know, an Alzheimer's expert, mm -hmm. but uh, I think the thinking on it now is that in those initial stages, when you have that protein, what is it? APP protein, amyloid precursor it, protein. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so you have that protein in the brain, and it's naturally occurring, and it does whatever function it does. But then when it misfolds, it becomes something um, like a, it has a tendency to aggregate, and it becomes a soluble, what they call a soluble oligomer. In other words, there's about, I don't know, what, 12 of them or something. There's a few of them that can join together. And they're still relatively soluble. They haven't aggregated into the plaque, you see. Mm -hmm. But those um, soluble oligomers are considered by many to be the toxic species. Mm -hmm. Right? So now all of a sudden they're permeable to maybe membranes in the brain and, mm -hmm. and so forth. When yeah. They shouldn't be aggregated like that. Now, what prompts them to aggregate like that or spontaneously go into these soluble ligamers? Mm -hmm. uh, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's... A, more research needs to be done. More maybe. research needs to be done. Yeah. Or, or, you know, and there's people that know a lot more about it than I do. I'm not, yeah. You know, keeping up with the Alzheimer's literature, but... It's probably um, a lot. Yeah. There's plenty of other things to do right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's... I mean... But I... I well, I don't think it's super well understood because there are no effective drugs against Alzheimer's. Even though you hear about it, a news release once mm -hmm. every couple of years, new drug for Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. and it always peters out. It yeah. never never works. There's a lot of hype. And there's no cure to, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Well, we can move on maybe to your at-home gardening as a yeah. different topic. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. um what what made you what made you start gardening? I was inspired by you guys. <laughs> no, I think people like you represent the future. You know, I I think um, there's a guy named Chris Martinson online that I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but he talks about the three E's: energy, environment and um the economy mm -hmm. so the three e's you know yeah. and we're kind of having crises in all three of those areas at once you know and i think my premise is that we're gonna live in an energy constrained future right now i mean we are utterly dependent on oil basically oil coal and natural gas yeah. for pretty much everything that humanity does you know the whole concept of globalization is premised on the price of oil being negligible like the yeah. price of transport being negligible and i'm not one of those guys that says we need to get off oil you know in fact getting off oil i think would be suicide for our species and that's our problem at this point right so we um tapped out on conventional oil back in 2005 conventional oil meaning the easy to pull stuff the stuff that basically just bubbles to the surface. Yeah, yeah. So I'm old, so I'll reference the Beverly Hillbillies. Mm -hmm. And you remember Jed Clampett was out there with his gun and he shot and it <laughs> and he shot it at a squirrel or something mm -hmm. and a bunch of oil just like <laughs> pounded out of the ground, yeah. right? Have you seen the movie with Daniel Day Lewis, There Will Be Blood? No. Have you seen that? It's a that. great um uh movie storytelling of 
the emergence of cheap oil found in mm -hmm. yeah it was a, in my opinion a one-time lottery ticket for humanity mm -hmm. and we're just about tapped out uh, and we are more or less tapped out on the conventional oil and the mm -hmm. conventional oil when i say that i mean easy to pull and it's it's where you take a barrel of conventional oil is enough energy, forget the currency part, but yeah. just a, enough energy to pull out another hundred barrels of oil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So one barrel of oil you need to pull out the rest, but the other 99 barrels are discretionary spending, right? Mm -hmm. So you can pave the earth, um, make suburbs all mm -hmm. over the world. Make plastics. Um, you know, crush Hitler, make plastics, fly to the moon. You just you all the stuff that you can do, and you can create this infrastructure that relies on transport. Mm -hmm. But we tapped out on conventional oil. In fact, we peaked. That's already in the rearview mirror um, back in 2005, 2006. And now we rely mostly on the tight oil you know, the shale and the tar sands and the, you know, underwater oil and stuff like that, mm -hmm. which is much, much harder to extract. And, and so the energy that you're consuming too, right? Much more, it takes much more energy to pull out the same. It's much oil. more energy. That's, and that's the key part. I want to make that point is that it's much more energy intensive to extract that kind of oil. Yeah than it is the conventional oil that we grew up on and that we built our entire system on, mm -hmm. you know. And so, you know, and people will disagree or, or whatever and say, well, there's plenty of oil down there. And I don't agree. I mean, I don't disagree that there's plenty of oil out there. That's, that's not the issue. The issue is that it's not cheap to extract mm -hmm. that oil, right? So now the energy return on investment of this stuff is more like 10 to 1. You, I mean, people, experts can argue about the exact number, but when you previously had 100 to 1 energy return on investment, now you've got 5 to 1 or 10 to 1, you know, and like there's experts that can tell you the exact number, but it's not easy to pull oil anymore. And so you have, like, you know, when you look at the fracking setup, you see trucks coming mm -hmm. in, like thousands of trucks, and they're carrying sand, and they're carrying water, and they're carrying all these proprietary chemicals that they need to inject into the ground and, and all that. Um, yes, there has been a fracking revolution in this country. Most of the new oil on earth over the last 12 years has been from American shale oil. It truly was a boom. But at this point, we're, we're tapping out on even that. Yeah, and so it's clear. not clear what we're going to do when we become more and more constrained with that yeah. oil. And I saw, I think we're getting pretty close. Like even now in the Bakken, 93%, I just, I was looking at some numbers a couple of days ago, 93% of the production, 93% is from just four counties in the Bakken. Where's the Bakken? It's in North Dakota, the, oh, the okay. oil fields yeah. in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And um, so the others are already tapped out. It but, doesn't mean they're not producing anymore, but it means that they're not, increasing in production mm -hmm. anymore mm -hmm. and so when that happens you get kind of a peak you know with any kind of resources right you you yeah. first it's party days and you're just yeah. extracting and you hire more people and get new equipment and you can pull out more of those resources but at some point 
it peaks like mm-hmm. a copper mine or, or, or an oil well or whatever, whatever resource you're talking about. And after that, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you're just not increasing production anymore. You know, we just have those limits to, to grow. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a great analogy for winning the lottery. Like you, as you said just earlier, <laughs> humans real. are willing, winning the lottery, but most lottery winners end up chewing and burning through that money pretty quick because they don't know what to do with it all. Yeah, 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 and yeah. They the just same. blow it, right, right. And we kind of did that, I think, <laughs> yeah. with, with our... Well, I think we did that with oil. Like, yeah. you know, the American suburbs, for example, are probably one of the greatest misallocations of resources in human history, right? Mm-hmm. Just getting... just going out there and there's no production out there necessarily but it's just you have to drive out there just to live Mm. and then (laughs) if you want to work or get groceries or do anything you have to drive quite a ways away from there so that model of life just i don't think has a future i know people can disagree with me that's fine but um well i I thought wind turbines and solar arrays are going to save save our future i don't think so imagine if okay look at what we do as the the core of our activity as a globalized economy as a species we fly Mm -hmm. planes all over the earth we run 18 wheelers all over to transport goods we send cargo ships across the oceans you know with bunker fuel we operate heavy machinery to strip mine the earth Okay, none of that is going to be done. You know, an airplane, you know, you're not going to stick a solar panel on an airplane (laughs) and and you're not going to replace. None of that is replaceable. There's no substitute for oil. I mean, there's just not. I'm not against, um, you know, solar panels. I was one of the early adopters for solar panels and stuff. And I'm really into them, but they're just not going to sustain our way of life. There's no way. Certainly not maybe for industry. But what about the home at the home, right on a, on a more micro scale, is it possible to have smaller wind turbines? I think that's solar arrays uh, that... f- fine, fine. Yeah. I'm not against that, yeah. but I mean, that's I think that's what we should have done in the beginning. You know, forty years ago when we we're first coming out with solar panels, it should have been domestic use, and then it would have encouraged people to become producers. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and a decentralized energy system, and but that's uh, distributed uh, money. We don't want that. <laughs> Well, I mean, <laughs> energy is money, right? Or yeah. it underlies money or whatever. So anyway, so you're not going to substitute, you know, you know, you know, airplanes flying around and all this or heavy machinery. You're, you're not going to substitute for oil. You're just not. You need it, you know, and coal and natural gas and stuff. Um, another thing, electric vehicles. I'm, I'm real down on electric vehicles. You know, one of the batteries, you get a Tesla <laughs> or something. And I'll just throw out some numbers here. Forgive me if they're not quite right, but they're just about right. But I mean, if you own a, a, an electric vehicle and you take the battery out, you got something like 90 pounds of copper, mm-hmm. 60 pounds of nickel, 30 pounds of cobalt, 25, 30 pounds of lithium and, and other metals that I can't even think of right now 
right? How is that green? How mm-hmm. is that green? You got to strip mine the earth yeah. for those metals. And how do you do that? You do that with diesel fuel and heavy machinery. I don't know if you guys have seen the way cobalt is mined with slave labor, you know, in these the children in yeah. the Congo. Yeah, 30% of it or something, mm-hmm. or yeah. huge percent of it comes from the Congo. And it's, it's, it's causing it's, civil unrest and. Like yeah. Okay. So now, dying from that so you order. want everybody to drive an electric vehicle? You've got to up the production of all these metals by thousands of mm-hmm. percent. How are you going to do that? You know, more slave labor. Um, you know, how much more copper and lithium do we have that's easy to extract? Yeah. And once again, you can say, "Oh, well, there's plenty of metals down there, but how is it easy to extract?" Yeah. Right. Is, what's the energy return on investment? And I think what we're seeing with all these electric vehicles is it's just not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. So you why are they a, pushing A few this? rich guys can drive electric vehicles or whatever, but yeah, I don't know. That's where um, I think the left and the right are completely misguided. And I'm I'm not here for politics. No. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to. I don't, answer even, that I don't even know right what now. your politics are. Actually, <laughs> but, it doesn't matter. But mm-hmm. um, I think the left. I, I think they're worshiping false idols here with all this technology and solar panels. And, you know, that's not the way we're going to get rid of carbon dioxide. You know, you got to go into regenerative <laughs> farming, I would think, to get yeah. rid of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, not solar panels. That doesn't mm. address anything, right? And it's not sustainable and it doesn't support life as we know or the economy as we know it mm-hmm. yeah and perhaps right? perhaps that's a good segue back to and the right and let me just say one yeah, thing yeah, oh, pick, yeah. i picked yeah, on the left yeah, absolutely. But, um, <laughs> the right has been completely asinine about environmental issues and, and even taking a stand to be anti-environmental so mm-hmm. which is i don't wild. think I don't think either party has leadership on this issue. I I think the green revolution is just a a kind of a false idol and it's not going to work. It's not going to continue business as usual, you know, Mm -hmm. and we'll get to the green revolution here in a moment. I I, I assume you're speaking about the Haber Bosch process that no green revolution where um, certain politicians come out and say, okay, we're going to get rid of fossil fuels completely there's going to be no more oil and everybody's going to be flying on magic carpets with powered by <laughs> solar yeah. panels. You know, we're all going to go electric vehicles. We're yeah. all going to go solar panels for our energies. We're yeah. going to have more windmills and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And it's just not going to work. Yeah. Maybe if we want to live in mud huts and have a greatly reduced standard of living, then perhaps you can do without oil to some extent, but that puts us back in the 15th century. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So anyway, that, that's my rant on (laughs) on that. Um, I was just going to use that as an opportunity to kind of turn it back into your inspiration to begin gardening at home and, um, just kind of touch on what you're growing, what that process has been like for you. And as someone that's not, uh, farmer in the sense that you're trying to grow food to make your living which might be wise but (laughs) what's what does your garden look like what are you growing and um yeah well I guess my garden looks a little bit like yours except it's way more amateur (laughs) (laughs) it's um so my I mean I have a learning curve just like anybody else 
it said, what does it feel like to be a chemist gardener? And I said, like anybody else, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But I have a learning curve. I used to just dig and dig and dig and tear my back out and stuff like that <laughs> and throw some manure on it and throw some seeds yeah. or whatever. Mm. But um, it's been great. This year has been pretty good. We, um, the squash and the zucchini have gone nuts, like, you know, the patty pans and the crooknecks and... Uh, we're just growing all kinds of stuff. We'll just see what we can grow. Lot, lots of bell peppers and tomatoes and various herbs and potatoes. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm a big fan of potatoes. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, so we got to the place where we're producing more than than we can eat at the moment. So we made a little farm stand outside. Nice. And awesome. We're trying to sell some vegetables and we've sold a few not a lot yeah yeah. that's great (laughs) every once in a while somebody comes by and yeah buy some potatoes or Mm -hmm. eggs or something yeah oh so you got chickens got chickens yeah yeah and so i i'm kind of feeling like chickens are a part of the whole thing the whole cycle of the poop and amending the dirt Mm -hmm. i think the carbon cycle the carbon cycle yeah i think the chickens are helpful because they provide the manure and or some manure and which is super high in nitrogen yeah, I've, that's what I've roots. heard, that it's yeah. a real hot manure, right? Yeah, it needs to be sent through a composter or a compost heap in order to, um, I guess, not necessarily neutralize. You're the chemist, so you might understand or have the official word for it, but basically to bind that nitrogen to organic compounds to help reduce the solubility of that nitrogen so it doesn't burn plants. Oh, okay. All right. That's good to know. Um, yeah. So what I'm doing now is I'm just kind of putting all that stuff into a compost and I've got a bunch of red wiggler worms in there. Mm -hmm. Nice. And they seem to be doing a good job. I mean, the worms seem really happy for now. So I guess, you know, and they, and they take care of the alpaca poop and that I get from this one guy and, and, the chicken manure and mm-hmm. and whatever else grass clippings or just throw everything in there and the yeah. the worms seem to like it somebody had told me that that's a good way that you don't have to like turn your compost by hand if mm-hmm. you have worms yeah they do. <laughs> i mean yeah. they're so. the rototillers of the of the earth yeah right, right. yeah, so, <laughs> yeah um, cause it seems like every time i look at a wheelbarrow my back goes out of place lately so anyway um, well, you touched on uh, very, very briefly on the fact that you're a chemist doesn't uh, necessarily apply to your gardening. We had a curiosity if from a chemistry perspective, I would at least wonder if you pay maybe more particular, closer attention to what's happening in no, your plants I, or I'm, your soil. I make any mistakes yeah. that anybody else <laughs> would make and probably worse, whatever. Mm. And I, no, there's no... I think you just, when you you start something new, like whatever it might be, you just take your knocks and try mm-hmm. to learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, we're learning. talking about feeding ourselves, right? And supporting well, so, ourselves. Well, so yeah, on a so... bigger level. So, you know, yes, I, I ran on that rant on energy because I think we are going to have to start eating more local food. We're not going to get it shipped from Guatemala or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. Um and it's for that reason, I, I think, I don't know, I look up to you guys as kind of the heroes of this story because, you know, I mean, I'm sure it's very tough for you to compete with factory farming and all that, but 
what you're doing, I think, represents the future, mm-hmm. at least in my mind. Yeah, you, I mean, yeah. I I would agree. Um, I I do think that local, small to medium scale farms probably will be our future. We need more people that are growing food that can feed individual communities because if we do reach a point where food is no longer being shipped even just around the country or overseas there's going to be a serious crisis Mm -hmm. in that we won't have food to consume unless you are growing your own yeah um it certainly is hard work and stressful to try to feed a community especially when people I don't know. Not everyone has the same mindset yet. They can go to the grocery store and get something for a few dollars cheaper. And there's this, I think it's misinformation, but people have this idea that organic food in the grocery store, it's, it's always so small and it's always wilty and it's always poor quality and it's so expensive. And that's because they're buying organic food that's been shipped in from however many states away or from overseas, depending on what the item is. And so there's some re-education that needs to take place to show people that actually local produce, local organic produce can be just as big as any conventional produce and definitely more nutritious because it's harvested within days of your own consumption as the consumer. Um, But so long, long story short, I do think that um, more small scale farming within communities is going to be really important for our future, but also consumers beginning to shop and support more local farms yeah what needs to come first people with the demand for local food or local food being grown first probably or maybe a combination of both yeah sure maybe a bit of both but for sure demand from people will create more growth in local farms and i think we've even seen that with opening our cafe and farm store we have this model where we're trying to use local food as much as we can and we like to promote other local farms and businesses and as we started that we noticed more and more other little locations in town that were suddenly doing the same buying local eggs for use using local milk and I, i remember initially being like oh they're copying us I was like, you know what? This is a great form of flattery because how awesome that we've inspired another small local business to also use other local producers instead of bringing in just the cheapest milk they can find Mm -hmm. and the big giant cases of conventional eggs. Yeah. And as demand increases for those local goods, those businesses will maybe be undersupplied, supplying that demand. And that's that's actually, I think, is a good thing Mm because it shows that there's a proof of concept here and that we can start hiring more employees to actually then increase production for all these new emerging markets mm-hmm. right. in our local and regional areas. Uh, as far as though, I, mean, I want to get back to your question about how we feel and how we can compete with industrialized conventional agriculture. Yeah. Well, it all, it's all dependent on the price of oil, right? Because conventional agriculture is completely enveloped by the price mm-hmm. or dictated by the price of oil. We're going to be talking here with Roger about the Haber-Bosch process, but... Mm-hmm. Just a quick introduction. The Haber-Bosch process was a process that was invented, uh, I think it was 1908 it got started, but it had to do with the fixation of nitrogen, which is absolutely vital for crops. Mm-hmm. Anybody mm-hmm. who grows out there might have know that you, we need nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium as our three primary uh, elements for crop production. Well, nitrogen production right now in conventional agriculture is completely dictated by or is completely 
fueled by fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. We use natural gas as one of the materials or whatever you feedstocks, feedstocks yeah, for yeah. the production of nitrogen. Um, it was used for hydrogen, but we'll get into that. Um, so as the price of oil goes up, conventional agriculture or conventional products, the price of it's going to go up at the consumer level. As we continue to globalize this, this uh, agricultural uh, system that we have on this planet, the price is going to go up. So it gets to a point where we, on the local level, we're not going to have to ship this stuff and, um, uh, what's the term, eat that cost of transportation. So we are actually at this point right now, we are competitive with organic other, like, you know, supermarkets that sell organic products that are shipped from either overseas or California or Texas, whatever. I think your prices are actually, for the first time, I've noticed, like you go to um, Super One, that's the local, you know, or mm-hmm. supermarket here. Yeah. It's a chain. Um, you go there and you look at the organic section, you look at potatoes or, or there's, I think, like five leaves of chard for yeah. four ninety nine, or was it three ninety nine, or and something. The prices are, yeah, the prices are actually kind of high mm-hmm. or really high. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you can go to the non-organic section and get cheaper, but even those prices are getting higher too. Yeah. And then we go to you guys and I think. I think I can get charred for less than that. For yeah. Guys. yeah. I, forget, I don't know what yeah. your price is. Yeah. yeah. Usually two fifty to three bucks. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Ten so, so it's grown right day. here, you know, <laughs> probably grown a few miles yeah. from where somebody lives. Yeah. And yeah, that makes and more sense cheaper. for perishable goods. That and we so need to there's a, almost a turning point because I don't ever remember growing up where the local farmer was able to do it cheaper than what the organic section or mm-hmm. whatever at the at the supermarket. Yeah. And so there's kind of a turning point mm-hmm. there. I've seen that quite a few times, mm-hmm. you know. Like so, Max the farmer down the road. Yeah. I mean, he's just pounding out like all this volume of vegetables and yeah, stuff. And I think growers. he beats the prices on yeah. a lot of, you know, a lot of the store-bought stuff. Yeah. So. But anyway, so hopefully that's a future trend, you know, which is just kind of a trend of decentralization in general, which yeah. I think we're just going to have to do. Right now, um, there's a lot of power that's trying to centralize control and retain that power, I guess. But I think the tectonic plates are shifting away from that model and we're going to be more localized, more decentralized, um, I think. Maybe you'll be more worried about who your local warlord is rather than who's who you're going to vote for for president. You know, <laughs> it's so quite we'll, possible. We'll see how that turns out. Yeah. Or, but um, I think the trends are in your favor. Yeah, I, I hope so. I think so. And maybe it'll just happen naturally, as we're seeing here with our prices becoming cheaper than stuff that's shipped from elsewhere, maybe it's just going to be a natural transition of the consumer being like, well, that's just cheaper. I'm just going to buy that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it just happens naturally. Yeah. So, well. Yeah. And maybe sometimes it's not only about price, right? I mean, if I see two bags of potatoes and they're the same price, but on one hand I can support you guys and get them from you rather than from the truck or whatever, mm-hmm. then I'd go for the local person, you know, anytime right. you have a choice like that. Yeah. And I hope, I hope people are waking up to that. Mm-hmm. I think they are. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or even like analyzing that quality a little closer. Like you can look at the 
whatever the grocery store potatoes versus one of the local farms and even if the grocery store is a bit cheaper it's likely worth spending the extra few bucks when you think about the quality and the length of storage of that crop in comparison like you're just going to be getting something that's likely more nutritious and more freshly harvested than something that's been sitting in the grocery store for right who knows how long (laughs) and speaking of the time um between harvesting of a crop and the consumption of the crop nutrition um declines pretty rapidly for a lot of produce fresh Mm -hmm. produce out there once it's harvested like broccoli for example more than a few days old and it's not really a nutritious product Mm. and Mm -hmm. so it either has to be frozen in time and eaten at a later date or it should be eaten immediately Mm -hmm. as far as for the highest nutritional uh concentration of those plants well there you go so the quality's inherently superior to the usually to the local yeah you know and that's why we can just compete with conventional products because ours our produce actually tastes like something right it's not just watery cardboard right yeah Yeah. (laughs) right yeah um well should we get to the haber bosch process yeah sure i mean there's not much to get to the only the only point that i wanted to make on that is that um the haber bosch process is a way of making ammonia fertilizer Mm mm-hmm and as a feedstock, it requires methane, CH4, natural gas. natural gas, you know, the simplest hydrocarbon. And you burn that to make hydrogen gas. Yep. And then you use that hydrogen gas to hydrogenate nitrogen from the atmosphere. Like our atmosphere is 79% or so um, nitrogen gas, N2. Yep. And so you're going to reduce that to NH3 mm-hmm. with the hydrogen gas that came from the natural gas or methane. That we took out of the earth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the point being is you need the methane, you need the natural gas. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I'll continue my rant on energy a little bit. But natural gas, we uh, humans all over the world, not just the Americans, we're using it utterly dependent on it for electricity production and home heating Mm -hmm. as well as fertilizer production so it's a big three right there and without those our quality of life goes catastrophically downhill and we start burning wood again (laughs) we start burning wood again well that's what happened in the byzantine empire which was about 1500 bc they they burn, they just chop down like 10 million tons of trees, right? Millions and millions of trees. And they used that to smelt copper and tin to make bronze, right? And they had a whole globalized system. And they collapsed when they ran out of easy to cut trees. Yeah. Right? The whole thing fell apart. They were, used, they were able to use the bronze and the wood to make chariots, and the chariots were superior to a, just a dude, you know, like a lone soldier, <laughs> right? There, yeah. yeah, one guy in a chariot could, you know, he could kill like five guys, just soldiers. But anyway, point being, it didn't mean it's the end of humanity, but it means it was the end of that empire of that culture that culture that civilization and that's kind of at the precipice where we are right now with oil oil coal and natural gas yeah you know Um, i think and you know there's others that can disagree or whatever but i think we're pretty close to to really running really really running out of cheap cheap oil yeah 
Uh, yeah. So currently, I looked it up. We're using about three to three to five. I'm use, we're using about three to five percent of natural gas mm-hmm. for this process of producing ammonia from the mm-hmm. nitrogen that we get in the air. And so the nitrogen gas. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's two nitrogen molecules triple bonded to each other. Mm-hmm. And so that triple bond requires an insane amount of heat and or pressure to split that bond because those nitrogen gases are very stable yeah. or those two end molecule or atoms are very stable. They don't want to be split apart. Yeah. And so Bosch was rewarded or awarded the Nobel peace prize. I think it was in 1931 eventually for his, um, seminal work on high pressure vessels. Right. Right. Especially at a commercial scale. Right. And I think um, there's a big picture of uh, like a statue of it outside the original factory or something in Germany still. Yeah. 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 And then Haber, he was the one who was more on the chemical side. Oh yeah. I think Haber was the original guy that came up with the chemistry and, and I kind of simplified the chemistry. There's a lot of, you know, catalysts and zinc oxide things that they use, you know, and they had to scrub sulfur away and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Haber was the chemistry guy and Bosch was, I guess, the, or was it the other way around? Anyway, he was the engineer (laughs) that kind of scaled it and made a process out of it. So it was like a tag team, I guess. But anyway, then the one point, one last point on that I wanted to make is that a huge percent of the people on earth right now are at the dinner table because of the Haber-Bosch process. You know, you need that methane to make the ammonia fertilizer Mm -hmm. and the urea and stuff like that that we use. And we're already seeing problems with it. Like right now in Europe, because of the geopolitical situation with Russia, they're getting less natural gas piped in from Russia and they're already having to shut down some of their industry and they're going to have a lot less natural gas for the purpose of making fertilizer. So they're looking like right now, they're looking at initial shortages of Mm -hmm. ammonia based fertilizer. Yeah. So it'll be really interesting to see what they do over the next couple of years to try to address that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Haber was quoted actually. He said, they discovered how to make bread from air. It's such a brilliant quote, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because the nitrogen, there's, what, 70,000 tons of nitrogen gas above every single hectare of land yeah. in our atmosphere. Oh, yeah, it's just full of it. It's yeah. full of it. We, yeah. we have a, we have a uh, completely sustainable supply of nitrogen for the production of our food so that we have enough energy to think and talk at this podcast today, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We are completely dependent upon nitrogen for... Yep for every many things as as you know yes. in our bodies. Now the but, challenge oh go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say but the process and what I really want to nail home today is the Haber Haber Bosch process is an extremely energy intensive process. Mm-hmm. Like with oil where that we're getting to it's it takes more energy to produce one calorie of unit output of energy that's fixed into ammonia mm-hmm. the molecule. So this is an inherently unsustainable industry. Right, we are going to run out of this eventually, right. right? Unless we have an amazing new breakthrough in how to produce right. this at atmospheric temperature and pressure. Yeah, because currently, what is it? It's like thirty at plus atmosphere, and the temperature exceeds five hundred degrees Celsius in these pressure, ves- pressure oh, vessels. Oh yeah, and you, and that energy comes from the methane, of course, mm-hmm. or the natural gas. Yeah, 
And so, yes, we have it in the atmosphere and we can fix it with, I get, what is it, legumes that fix nitrogen mm-hmm. and with the microbes and everything. But that's a very diffuse energy, right? It's not just like burning some hydrocarbons and then getting this massive amount of energy immediately released, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's more diffuse. Like solar panels, for example, is a very diffuse form of energy. You don't yeah. have enough combustion to run an 18-wheeler all of a sudden, right? No, it's You're, a lot less smaller units of energy. Yeah, so that's the displaced. challenge, right? So how do 8 billion people transition kind of off of hydrocarbons a a little bit more into natural processes like we used to do in the 1500s or whatever, right? Well, the irony is that all these hydrocarbons, oil, natural gas, coal, all of this was, is ancient sunlight that has been through photosynthesis has been stabilized and stored this unit, these, this energy has been Mm -hmm. stabilized into various carbohydrates and starches and benzene structures and whatever like whatever right, else right, there is chemistry, right? right so this all of oil comes from plants it's a natural occurring product it's not synthetically made yeah natu- and i oil. think one thing we can all agree on even people that say it's not from fossil fuels or whatever but i think we'd all agree on it took millions of years exactly mm-hmm. For the, you know those like you said those plants to decompose and everything mm-hmm. and we just don't have millions of years to no. replenish any of it mm-hmm. so yeah that's a problem you yeah. know but we get our energy from the sun right like that's yeah. where our energy comes from all over this planet yes there there's not a single unit output of or unit of energy that we are currently using in our ecosystems in our environment in our industrialized um uh, agriculture and just in our industry that has not come from the sun. Ultimately comes Ultimately. from the sun. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Whether it's from uh, 800 million years ago or from yesterday. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's amazing. We're utterly dependent on sunlight and a th- thin, tiny strip of, you know, topsoil yeah. <laughs> that grows stuff yeah. to keep us alive. That hopefully has enough percentage of carbon in it right, that can right. actually hold on to nitrogen. And same thing with animals, the right? They're dependent on that topsoil too. Exactly, to, you yeah. Know, you graze off of or whatever, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we were discussing yesterday, and I think it's a good time to bring this up, where did we get sufficient nitrogen for crop production before this invention? Because there was food being grown, um, and we need to continue growing food, whether or not we can continue to produce nitrogen through the factory process. Yeah, through the Hopper-Bosch process. Yeah. So where was it coming from before? Well, is that a quiz? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, a we, bit of a loaded we have, Well, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have 8 billion people on Earth. Exactly. And, 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 hey, by the way, I'm not a eugenicist or whatever. Yeah. I mean, but I think we just didn't have that many people on Earth and we used a lot more um, animal and mm-hmm. human labor. And we used human feces, did we not? Oh, yeah. For fertilizer. Through most of human history, a lot of the ammonia came from, you know, our own shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. right? and actually more concentrated through urea, our mm-hmm. urine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our urine has an insanely high, much, much higher nitrogen concentrations than any type of manure out there. Okay. Yeah. So... I mean, so there was a lot of that. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but that in the United States right now, we have more prisoners than we do farmers. Mm. Mm. Sounds about um, right. 
But back then, partly to answer your question, I think a higher proportion of people were involved in agriculture yeah. back yeah. then. It was the turn of the century or something when yeah. the early 1900s? It was one in 10 people in the turn of the 20th century, and now we're at like one out of 143. Oh, okay. So there, there you go. Yeah, yeah it's so, gone up exponent. So yeah. I think when we get this next recession or depression, whatever we're, we're entering right now, um, and a lot of jobs are wiped out. What does a recovery look like? Does it mean you know, building 8,000 new Walmarts and <laughs> making more suburbs? I don't think so. If you ask where the jobs might come back, I think in local agriculture might be a bright spot for mm-hmm. where the human activity, you know, recongregates Certainly. a little bit or where the jobs might come back. That's what my thought is. And so we'll go back mm-hmm. to using a higher proportion of you know, animal and on the horses around here, they're typically, I don't know if they're used for farming or plowing the fields or whatever, but mostly just to look at, you know, you go back to using more animal and human labor, I'd think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one horsepower. That's part of the answer. The other part of the answer is I'm not sure. I don't don't Um, know. So there's, uh, there's actually a variety of bacteria that are nitrogen fixers, Mm -hmm. meaning that at atmospheric temperature and atmospheric pressure, they are able to break the bonds of nitrogen gas and then, I mean, I don't know the word for it, but store that into organic compounds, mm-hmm. you know. And so these are, there's bacillus strains that are highly anaerobic that mm-hmm. can fix nitrogen. And then there's certain um, uh, bacterial strains that are obligate aerobes. Mm-hmm. So they need oxygen in order to break those bonds or they need to survive. Mm-hmm. They need mm-hmm. oxygen to survive, but they are able to break those bonds. And then they send that nitrogen up to the plant. So they, so remember you're talking about legumes. Mm-hmm. So the plant, the plants actually don't fix nitrogen at all. Legumes, if there was no colonization on their root nodules with mm-hmm. bacteria, I don't know if they're endophytes or not, the bacteria um, that are, do colonize root hairs of plants. But you, if you were to pull up a an alfalfa or um, a four-leaf clover or whatever plant, a uh, clover plant, you'll see these little nodules in the roots. Have you investigated this before? I've seen th- stuff that maybe, maybe it's nodules yeah. and stuff looks like it. Yeah. Well, yeah. so there are these like... Pulled up my pea plants. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and on these root nodules, you'll see these the developments of these, or on these roots, you'll see the developments of these essentially nodules or like little balls mm-hmm. around, and these are bacteria that have actually colonized inside the plant and have are starting to create this symbiotic relationship with the plant. The bacteria they pull the nitrogen out of out of the atmosphere, they break those bonds, and they send that then free nitrogen up to the plant in exchange for carbohydrates for their metabolism. And so that's where we got the majority of our nitrogen for crop production outside of composting and manure. But all that nitrogen came from somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Came from the main source. We came from our atmosphere. Yeah. And there's a limitless supply in the atmosphere. There is. Yeah. Yeah. And so with the Haber-Bosch process, we've now, instead of a dissociated nitrogen uh, distribution network to the yeah. plants on the microscopic scale. We've now brought that all together into these giant plants and then distribute that nitrogen accordingly across the world. Yeah, centralized, highly centralized. It's a highly centralized. Yeah. Yeah. And before it was a very decentralized nitrogen cycle. Right. Right there on the ground on the microscopic level. And 
that's where I think we need to get back to. Uh, certainly for agriculture. Now, for other nitrogen applications, I'm not sure. I'm sure there's going to be um, applications for industrialized nitrogen fixation, mm-hmm. but it should be a much smaller level. Well, it goes back to um, energy return on investment again. Yeah. So somebody will come up with, hey, let's get these type of uh, these bacteria, these nitrogenase containing bacteria and let's put them in a fermenter and do this make an operation where we make urea and and ammonia and stuff like that by this process but what happens is is going to be nowhere near the scale of what you can do with natural gas Mm -hmm. yeah and the energy return on investment is going to be terrible for it you know you're going to do it on a small scale but not on a huge factory level scale yeah and you're not going to get the amounts that you're accustomed to and that 8 well, billion people are accustomed yeah. to. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, was there a demand for um, increased amounts of nitrogen on in this planet in the turn of the 20th century when this uh, process was invented? Or was it that the population grew because of this invention? And that's a big question. I'm not sure. I we were at have one to say the latter if I had to choose one. I think I'd so, say, too. Right? You have this invention and then, you, yeah. And I think there were other applications for it. I mean, they, explosives, yeah, perhaps. You know, for sure. Was during the era of, you're just preceding World War One, mm-hmm. And so, you know, they used it for all kinds of things. I think you can use fertilizer. Wasn't it, who was the guy at the Oklahoma building that used fertilizer as an explosive to to blow up the uh, some federal building in Oklahoma. Remember that? Uh, was that Timothy in the early 90s? Was that in the early 90s? Was it the World Trade Center in, in Oklahoma? Uh, no, but it was, it, was, it was just a guy that used a truck of fertilizer, apparently, to blow up a truck and blow up the federal building in Oklahoma City. Gosh, His I don't know that Timothy story. Mc, I don't know that Timothy either. McVeigh. Oh, okay. okay. Anyway, and... Who knows if that was if he it was even him that did it or somebody set him up or whatever. I, but the point being, you see, you can take fertilizer and make explosives out of it. Yeah. So there's a, those applications as well. So there's a there's a <clears throat> ton of energy stored in this fertilizer. Yeah, event, apparently. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If it's going to be such a catastro- catastrophic explosion, mm-hmm. yeah, there must be stored energy in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So where do, where is I, I, you're on your laptop? Maybe you can look it up if it was ammonium nitrate that they used or he used or. But anyway, yeah, <clears throat> or it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, yeah, it was it was ammonium, yeah. ammonium nitrate yeah. Yeah, okay. mixed with fuel oil. Okay. <laughs> so I would like to talk a little bit about uh, or continue to try and answer this question. That question being, where do we get sufficient nitrogen? Or where do will excuse me? Where, will, where we? will we get sufficient nitrogen for crop production once the Haber Bosch process becomes economically or energy uh, or not to, feasible? Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. That I think it's is. something that'll involve. But I guess the answer is. Let me just say one thing for real quick. People have this doomsday scenario, like uh, on three months from now at <laughs> two o'clock. There's all of a sudden we the shit hits the fan and it's a Mad Max scenario. And then the other side thinks, well, we progress eventually till we're flying around on Mars and stuff like that. And, this won't and the reality is probably somewhere in the mm-hmm. middle, right? Uh, yeah, These collapses sure. happen kind of in a, a slow decay kind of fashion. Yeah. That's 
kind of what's happening to us. But anyway, so in answer to your question, maybe we'll just evolve into using more and more green manure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. is, that what, is that the right term, green manure, where you use plants that fix the nitrogen? and Yeah, exactly. yeah. cover crops or yeah. just, cover you know, maybe, and... I think maybe more. Again, it comes back, I think, to the smaller and medium scale farms. And of course, it would be hard for any one small farm to produce enough. Uh, we we're talking about this when we gave you the tour in the greenhouse earlier, but it's hard even for us to produce everything that we need for our own farm in terms of compost and organic matter and amendments, brown matter, minerals. green matter, all the amendments. But maybe this will be the step forward in the future is for more small to medium scale farms to begin that process of really trying to create all of their own amendments right on site at the farm. So composting all of their um, leftover crops, putting that back into the soil, having worms, having um, animals, having animals, of course, because we're trying to close that carbon and nitrogen loop, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There are minerals leaving the farm every time we sell a piece of produce. Mm -hmm. And so that those minerals need to come back in at some point Mm -hmm. to the system. Yeah. I mean, I think it's doable. Um, The, People in the cities, though, are going to have a problem transitioning. There's going to be right. a lot of chaos and, you know. Emigration. Um, yeah, hum, human osmotic pressure, right? Yeah. Where people yeah. go, where there's a crisis in one area, so they move to other areas. Yeah. And so um, you're already seeing, I think, your people are moving out of the cities, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the growth that we've seen right here in the valley. And yeah. a lot of people are just like, get me the hell out of Seattle or or. Houston or Houston or whatever (laughs) (laughs) or wherever you know so I think that's like kind of a first wave of refugees and we may see more of that as times get harder yeah but Um, I mean I think humanity can do it I don't mm -hmm. see that this is the end of humanity yeah I don't I don't yeah I I don't have a doomsday scenario with humanity I think Collapse doesn't mean that everything's gone one day right the Romans are still there yeah, even though the em- empire collapsed in very similar fashion to what we're doing yeah. here. Yeah, people have the will to live. Yeah. Um, but though, still this question, I want to really nail it home. Um, so soil contains about 2,000 pounds of nitrogen per percentage point of organic matter in acres or in soil per acre. Wait, say that again. Yeah, soil was a little contain- bit much. So soil contains about 2,000 pounds of just nitrogen, just the element, right? Um, per percentage point of organic matter in but, our you mean soil. before it's fixed, just as gaseous state? No, or, no, or stabilized. Is, oh, okay. Right, All so right. organic matter, organic compounds, some of them, especially like DNA, proteins, et cetera, yeah. they have a decent amount of nitrogen in them, right? Right, okay. So this is like degraded plant material. It's dead microorganisms, living microorganisms. But if there's three, per, for every one percentage point of organic matter in the soil, there's about 2,000 pounds of pure nitrogen per acre. Oh, wow. Okay. And so, for example, that. if a field has 3% soil organic matter, and that stands, or that acronym is SOM for the feature here, then one can expect that that field will hold about 6,000 pounds of nitrogen in the soil. So we need more organic matter in our soils if we want to hold on to more nitrogen in its more stable form. That's not in nitrogen gas form. This nitrogen, though, is bound up, as I said, with our inorganic compounds, but the mineralization of soil and so the mineralization of nitrogen is actually pretty slow, and it happens from fungi and primarily bacteria 
at a rate of about 20 to 30 pounds per percentage point of organic matter in the soil per year. So, for example, and we use this for our nitrogen calculations on our farm here as far as trying to balance how much nitrogen we apply to our fields through amending, uh, amending the soil. Because if you put too much nitrogen in the soil, then you have an excess supply of really soluble nitrogen, and it's water soluble in these forms, and that gets uptaken into the plant and decreases the sugar content of the plant, which then affects their immune systems, affects their ability to protect themselves from pests, and it also leads to lower nutritional quality of the plants. So our aim as a farmer is to try and really narrow down and make give the perfect amount of nitrogen mm-hmm. for that plant in trickle form. Right. Because it doesn't want that nitrogen all at once. Yeah. Just a big bag of yeah. ammonia yeah. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. you'll have a desiccated plant pretty quickly there. Right, okay. Um, so that's what we're aiming for. And so the example is if if we have 3% organic matter in our soil, we can expect that between 60 and 90 pounds of nitrogen will be released on a per acre basis in that year that will then become available for the uptake into the plant, which the plant needs for DNA replication, protein synthesis, all these other metabolic pathways right. for so, the plant. So uh, just a quick question. Are yeah. those amounts that you're referring to, do they vary greatly between different soils or is that different just kind of, of a standard? Yeah, I would think that it'd be quite different. For It's a great question. Yeah. Um, so, Or is uh, that just as kind of a standard amount that, that's pretty common? So this is So these numbers are based off of pretty decent soil, I would mm-hmm. say, right? Because... These bacteria, like I said before, some of them are obligate aerobes, right? They need oxygen to survive. And if that soil, say it's a really heavy clay soil with um, really low magnesium in it, it's going to be an extremely tight soil, meaning that the air, the gas exchanges happening between the soil and our atmosphere is not happening, right? Mm -hmm. And these bacteria die and they don't release as much nitrogen. It actually can become anaerobic, okay? right? And then... And there's only certain bacteria that are nitrogen fixers that can uh, mineralize nitrogen in nitrogen gas and two uh, or break that bond nitrogen gas and then stabilize it in organic compounds. Right. There's only a couple that are anaerobic bacteria that can live in those really closed soils. You know, I also assume that if you have anaerobic conditions, meaning no oxygen, right? Exactly. So, okay, so you're tight soil, I can't get Mm -hmm. oxygen in there. You probably have the same problem with nitrogen too, right? Yes. I mean, so the atmosphere is like close to 80% nitrogen and 20, what, 21% or something oxygen and a little bit of CO2. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. okay, but anyway... Nitrogen and oxygen, right? So if you can't get oxygen, you probably can't get nitrogen either. You may have the same problem there. That's right. So when you have a soil that's super saturated or has an insane amount of water in it, there's not much dissolved oxygen, especially in that soil. It's really, you know, it's not an aerobic environment Mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the mineralization of of N from organic molecules in that soil is not going to be happening at the rate that you need to. Right, because these plants need a trickle feed of nitrogen throughout their growth cycle. In the beginning of their lives, they need um, nitrogen to grow their leaves, to grow their stems, to start producing flowers. And then if they're fruiting bodies or if they're fruiting vegetables and fruits, they'll need a certain amount of nitrogen in that fruit because that nitrogen is also made up of, or that fruit is also made up of nitrogen, phosphorus, and 
a lot of potassium. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. And so there'll be different levels that you need throughout the growing cycle of a plant, depending on what type of plant it is. Yeah. Ah, that explains some of my problems. <laughs> I'm sure I'm off on all of that. Well, this would be a great example. Should we talk about one of your problems that you see in your garden? Well, I, yeah, I have a number of problems. Um, the brassicas plants tend to be just full of holes, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe that, like you had mentioned one time, maybe they're telegraphing weakness or have an infrared signature or something that are telling the moths to come and just chew them up, or assuming that's the moths. But, well, you uh, really hit the nail on the head right there. Are you familiar that these moths and a lot of insects can see an infrared? Well, um I got that from you. <laughs> oh, you did? <laughs> we had talked once, ago, oh, like did. two or three months ago, and you had mentioned that, and I was like, oh, "Yeah, that's what's happening, probably." Yeah. Right. So, so they like sense that weakness. They do. In a so, plant. yeah. So sugar ferments inside insect larvae stomach. So if you have, and if they're consuming a brassica that's really high in sugar, mm-hmm. that they'll literally die. They'll fall right off the plant. And, oh, okay. All right. But even before that, if those moths, these are called cabbage moths or caudally mm-hmm. moths, or there's all sorts of names for these, um, this type of moth that we're talking about. But this is a type of worm or moth that um, lays eggs on the underside of brassicas, some, type of, some mustards, Napa cabbage, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And within a few days, those eggs hatch and they're almost microscopic little ma or worms, caterpillars. But they grow, they can grow to sometimes two inches long before they pupate. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And so in that meantime, these worms uh, or caterpillars are just chewing through our brassica crops. But are you familiar with bricks level? No. Not really. No. It's essentially like the, the, the sugar concentration, the sugar pr- percentage of um, solution. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we put it through our, our bricks meter. Essentially, it's just refracting light and seeing how much light is reflected off of the sugar in solution. Yeah. So the higher the bricks... You get a concentration from that or something? Yeah, we do. We get a percentage point. So if we have a bricks of like 14, that's pretty darn good for brassicas. And so we're trying to optimize the nutrition and the availability of all of these minerals um, that the plant needs to survive and grow. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to reach that really high bricks level. And when, if we do reach that extremely high bricks level in brassicas, the, the mothers won't lay eggs on these plants. Oh, really? And if they do, they'll take a few chews that really high sugar content of the food and just die. It literally ferment and like die. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So your solution would be basically amending the soil so that it's growing the I mean, not it's not spraying something on there or, you know, neem oil or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's certain pesticides out there that are totally fine for us. And we use a pesticide. It's organic proof. It's called BT or Bacillus mm-hmm. thuringiensis. Yeah. It's a type of bacteria that will infiltrate um, if it's consumed. We spray it on the leaves of the plants. Mm-hmm. And then if that bacteria is consumed, it'll basically cause gastrointestinal distress of the organisms eating the plant and kill them oh okay yeah all right um but you have to be careful when spraying that stuff because it actually can affect bees and beneficial insects so we spray early morning okay yeah mm-hmm. all right yeah like right yeah. As and the I, sun i'm assuming from the time that you spray it to the time that you eat those 
plants is quite a while. It is. Yeah. So yeah, you're yeah. not just like the next day collecting that broccoli and the yeah. head or whatever. Yeah. But exactly. even then, like this is literally just bacteria mm-hmm. that we're spraying on a plant. So BT is has no known issues with humans. Yeah. Yeah. And also why we wash everything anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and this is a this is a natural occurring bacteria in our soils even yeah. too. So. Yeah. It's just a concentrated form. Okay. So there's maybe a similar issue with leaf. I think they're called leaf miners that mm-hmm. you see on chard and oh, yeah. spinach. Yeah. And yeah. spinach, like all that. the quinopods. So I've had quite a bit of those, you know. They bore right. in between the waxy cuticles of the leaves and start moving around in there mm-hmm. and chewing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are bad too. Yeah, those yeah. things. So what I do is I just see a spot like that. I just get rid of that leaf. And I think I've eradicated most of it, but you yeah, know, they just keep coming back. Yeah. Yeah, those so those can be real that's a similar issue where it's just a matter of the soil being right or whatever. I would assume so. You know, we we used to have issues with leaf miners uh, in our quinopods, beets, spinach, chard, mm-hmm. etc. Um, but we haven't. I haven't seen really any on no, any of our crops, any of our quinopods. Yeah. So. And yeah. I, I guess yeah. in a an ideal farming world if you have the perfect soil the perfect water conditions the perfect amount of nitrogen being released for the plants as needed the plants will be so strong that pests just would not try to consume them Mm -hmm. and it's obviously of course for our farm at this scale it's been a constant work in progress and constant research to try to figure out what can we do to i think most frequently it comes down to the soil what can we do to improve the health of the soil for better uptake of particular nutrients in the plants what can we do to the soil to make sure these plants are stronger and healthier so that we don't get some swarm of pests coming in and destroying it Mm -hmm. uh, especially as organic farmers because we don't spray a bunch of shit on our plants that's detrimental to human health Um, but I think it it all ends up tying back in to the soil and making sure that you have the appropriate amount of organic matter so that your soil isn't too compacted so that when there is a big rainstorm the nitrogen doesn't just leach away yeah it's a big one yeah especially with conventional fertilizers this you know, ammonia is highly soluble, water soluble. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm not. And and highly concentrated. And highly concentrated, yeah. And currently, there isn't too much. How should I say this? Currently, there's not too much understanding on how to help um, chelate this these type of highly water soluble compounds to help mm. uh, with the slow release of them. Mm. And so, things that chelate nitrogen are. Actually, why don't we take a step back and just describe what chelation is? You oh, chelation. That, that, hey, there, there's your segue to glyphosate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, chelation, I guess it's a chemical term, I suppose. I um, so. When you have a molecule that binds something else, um, not covalently, in other words, not sharing the electrons, but just binds to it usually by virtue of a charge state. Okay. Then you have a chelation. Mm-hmm. And so we, I think we use that term most commonly with metal chelators. Mm-hmm. So there's this molecule that you may have heard of called glyphosate that <laughs> originally was designed as a metal chelator, which yep. means it wraps its, wraps itself around that metal and then there's an ionic charge that attracts the metal and the chelator to each other and 
so there's a binding process. Yeah. That this, yeah. And it makes it much harder to split those two molecules apart from each other. Right. Because of that polarity or because of that? Because of that affinity, I guess okay. you'd use that term, affinity. Okay. So there's organic compounds that are chelators that do the very Yeah, similar... the big one in the laboratory everybody uses is called EDTA. Yeah. And as far as I know, it's pretty safe. Mm-hmm. I hope it's pretty safe because <laughs> <laughs> if it's not, I'll probably be dead soon. But... <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then they have other stuff like um, glyphosate, which is an effective chelator. Mm-hmm. of calcium magnesium i think that's where they first used it right it wasn't roundup it was no it was, it was first a, it was first invented to help strip um various heavy metals off of industrial equipment right okay. that was the first yeah. okay so it chelated those metals yeah to help clean the, yeah. the industry yeah. yeah essentially and but uh there's organic compounds that are naturally occurring in the soil and it's a class of uh organic compounds um, called humic acids. Mm-hmm, so you have mm-hmm. your fulvic acid, which has a little bit of, it's the smaller of the three molecules. Then you have humic acid, which mm-hmm. is a kind of a bigger molecule. And then you have human, which is a super, super stable carbon uh, molecule that can persist in our soils undisturbed for m- many decades. Okay. Yeah. Fulvic acid is, is the small one that can really easily get um, uh, taken up by plants and translocated into the through the plant and this is a great way for certain um metals some certain divalent monovalent cation metals like zinc magnesium uh copper iron i guess those are all more than one those are all divalent or trivalent yeah yeah Yeah. but these are metals that the plant requires absolutely requires for metabolic activity so you're bringing up a good point a chelator is not necessarily a bad thing no (laughs) no it's not not some toxic compound necessarily sounds like it but no like i mean our iron is transported in our blood you know with uh you know hemoglobin and stuff and that's a key that's a chelation process but it's released you know yeah so anyway sorry go ahead and so so these humix these compounds are are carbon-based compounds and these are involved in in industrial or this is involved in agriculture more than we might realize because these are molecules that will hold on to certainly soluble um, compounds and elements that will either be leached out of the soil with heavy rains or excess mm-hmm. irrigation but these things hold on to those um, these highly important plant minerals and compounds that the plants use for growth and survival and their immune immune system. Um, so that's one of the reasons why organic matter in the soil is so important. Mm-hmm. The more ability the soil has to hold on to water and all of these vital nutrients for life, the better the ability these plants will grow, mm-hmm. or the better mm-hmm. these plants will grow. And, and incidentally, uh, the better to capture carbon as well, right? If, if, if you ever wanted to enter the the debate about you know excess co2 in the atmosphere or whatever yeah. right that oh was, i'd love to <laughs> <laughs> at some point here. i think we'll have a, a whole episode dedicated to yeah, that <laughs> different, yeah. different topic but but yeah so glyphosate glyphosate <laughs> we talked a little bit about what it is but maybe you can describe a little bit in more detail the chemical aspects of glyphosate just as an introduction into this conversation. Well, I just, you had mentioned that you were interested in it that one day. So I, I just <laughs> looked up some paper. I mean, I just looked it up and, yeah. and 
I'm kind of horrified. I, mm-hmm. I realized, I mean, I knew glyphosate was around and used in, in products like Roundup and stuff like that. Um, my wife has celiac disease, which is, I think, in response to exposure to probably Roundup. Yeah. I, I truly believe. And then I kind of looked up Stephanie Seneff's paper. There's mm-hmm. a, a professor at MIT named Stephanie Seneff. And I don't even know what her, she's a professor in like, I don't know, artificial intelligence, engineering, yeah. linguistics, or I don't even <laughs> yeah. know what her title is. But she was she's kind of taken the precursor a, of Siri in iPhones. Oh, she really? developed the framework for that. Really? Part oh, of it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So anyways, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, Different story. But she took a great interest in glyphosate. And for anybody that's interested in that topic, uh, some of her work might be good to read. She's got some papers out there, and I think mm-hmm. she wrote a book. and Called stuff. Toxic Legacy. Toxic yeah. Legacy, yeah. okay. Yeah. Buy yeah. and read it. And she makes mm-hmm. a very good case that um, celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disease, you know, an inflammatory process in the bowels, is highly related to glyphosate exposure. Yeah. So um, chemically speaking, well, when you look at that molecule as an organic chemist, for, oh, wait a minute. I, I, I wrote down some fun facts about glyphosate. Excellent. Yes, but I do want to come back to that point of view as an organic chemist. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but you, you can tell me if this is true or not, but it was originally used as a chelator, like we just talked about, yeah. right? Introduced in 1974, I guess, um, presumably as a chelator. But it's just grown in use by magnitude since then, right? Yeah. And right now, the best number I could find online is that we've used about 25 billion. Does that sound right? Tons. 25 billion tons of it since its inception. I wouldn't be surprised because I think the or pounds. I'm the sorry, market cap is like 24 down. billion a year. As Pounds. far as what is sold, no, 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 dollars. Oh, oh, yeah, of of sold glyphosate. Okay, I have twenty five billion pounds written down. But anyway, the point being was we drenched the earth and mm-hmm. and just so much of this stuff, right? U.S. buys twenty five percent of it of the world supply. The U.S. Used does right here in the five <laughs> percent of the population, but we mm-hmm. use twenty five percent of the world's glyphosate. Yeah, we invented it. Why wouldn't we use it? Used on over a hundred crops, mm-hmm. notably, you know, the GMO crops like corn and soy stuff like yeah. that. But yeah. also non-GMO crops too, like wheat and oats, where you desiccate it, to, yeah. you kill it so you can yeah. eat it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so we can talk a little bit about that process. So. When it comes to September and October, this is a kind of a wetter time of year, more humid environment. And so when you have these late crops, you need to get that crop out of the field at a um, at a moisture concentration that's below threshold so that bacteria and fungi don't consume that crop. Okay. And so glyphosate is a, is a desiccator. It's a desiccant compound. And it will pull that moisture out of that crop and actually kind of essentially kill the plant and really turn that plant into finalizing and getting that steed to desiccate and go dormant. Right. And then that's what we eat. We don't really wash these these crops off of with glyphosate, but glyphosate also gets into the plant and into seed as mm-hmm. well. Um, so that's just a quick talk about why we use it as a desiccant on non-GMO crops because it does kill crops that are not and we'll talk about this in a little bit uh, later but that are not roundup ready or mm-hmm. glyphosate ready okay so 
but yes, we use it on over a hundred crops already. Wow. I mean, that's just crazy. Um, Absorbed into plants, so you can't wash it away. Nope. Can last up to 20 years in the soil, according to Stephanie Seneff. Um, gets in the body and crosses the blood-brain barrier, mm-hmm. apparently. Mm-hmm. Holy crap, and I didn't know that. And there's emerging research on Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Yeah, well, it's probably part of the reason why, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Various formulations like Roundup, but 40 other different types of formulations as mm-hmm. well. You know, Different salts. Um, for what it's worth, the EPA says, quote, EPA continues to find that there are no risks to public health when glyphosate is used in accordance with its current label and that glyphosate is not a carcinogen. Mm-hmm. So that's the official position. So end of story, right? It's, <laughs> it's all good. Though I believe um, the FDA has relabeled glyphosate um, into a different class, right. which is a probable cause, probable Probable car- carcinogen to humans. Is that probable. the who? That, that's the wording that they're using. The now. who and maybe the the state of California and the F- I believe in the FDA and the, the FDA. So they've yeah. conflicting what the EPA is, right? I guess. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting. And then I guess some, somebody should mention that it's involved in the shikamat. If I said that right, shikamate, shikamate, shikamati pathway. Yeah. Um, that. Is a biochemical pathway that we don't have as humans, but bacteria, most microbes and plants mm-hmm. have that shikamati pathway. Yep. And it's important, highly important, because that's the pathway that plants use to make aromatic amino acids. Aromatic meaning there's a benzene ring in yep. the amino acid structure and i've heard i read somewhere just jotted it down that some the the dry mass of a lot of plants is like 35 percent of these aromatic amino acids is Mm -hmm. is that sound right that doesn't sound wrong i don't i can't (laughs) confirm that but but i mean this massive amount of the plant dry mass is actually the aromatic amino acids and then since humans don't have that pathway we need to get some of our amino acids, including aromatic. I think tyrosine and, and tryptophan. Mm-hmm. I think and phenylalanine. Phenyl, and phenylalanine is another one made in that pathway. Yeah. There's three: phenylalanine, tyrosine, and tryptophan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think two of those are actually essential amino acids for humans. That means we need to get it from our plants or, or microbes. Right? Yeah, through our yeah. diet because we cannot produce it we cannot in produce human cells. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so the reasoning, if I understand it, that people think it's safe, other you know, well, the EPA says it's safe, but they also say, well, humans don't have that pathway, so therefore it's not a problem for yeah. us. But we know that's bullshit. We know that's not right because we are composed there's been estimates that we're up to like 90 percent of our cells in our body are actually bacterial cells i don't know if it's Something actually like that, that high there's different estimates mm-hmm. for that i think that might the 90 percent might be have to do with the amount of dna uh diversity in okay. our bodies yeah that are non-human yeah but we, i think it's about 10 percent of our body weight is bacteria yeah and anyways this huge amount huge. right mm-hmm. we it's rely a upon huge, huge amount And so when you knock out the bacteria, meaning killing them, I guess, Mm -hmm. there's what the Enterococcus lactobacillus and the bifidobacteria, Mm -hmm. apparently, Mm -hmm. that get decimated 
by glyphosate, right? So when you knock those out, you're knocking out your ability to get, you know, aromatic amino acids from your diet or from yeah. your microbes. Right. Well, yeah. do you have something to say? Oh, I was just thinking, uh, I don't know, maybe off topic, but I was just thinking about any testing that's done on animals or humans with glyphosate that has created this idea that it causes no harm, I'm sure is very isolated studies where it's just like they take whatever form of glyphosate, rub it on the animal's skin. Or just in vitro on a single cell. Yeah, totally. Or or whatever, make a rat swallow a tiny little bit and whatever parts per billion in their food. And maybe it looks like there's nothing occurring. But when you think about consumption of glyphosate through, I mean, (laughs) really any conventional food in the grocery store that is not organic that is a grain, a cereal, whatever, corn, soy, any of the wheats, all of those are going to have some trace of glyphosate. And so it's this accumulation in our bodies of consumption after consumption. And sure, we don't have this shikimate pathway, but all the bacteria in our body that are doing all these different functions to help us properly process, digest, to keep our gut microbes happy to produce literal human hormones so Mm -hmm. tryptophan is a precursor to the human hormone serotonin and melatonin yeah right so these like you said they're Mm -hmm. the essential amino acids that we cannot get that we cannot produce we have to consume them through our diet Mm -hmm. and plants produce them Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. and among others but yeah and I learned a new word recently. So um, dysbiosis, yes. right? <laughs> so you got you knock out certain populations of your bacteria, and that allows the overgrowth of other pathogenic, you know, like Clostridium and Staphylococcus. And certain E. coli's and certain as well. I guess E. coli's, yeah. I wonder if that's where half these E. coli outbreaks come from yeah. in, you know, in the food supply. I wonder if they come from, because the animals are eating glyphosate, grain or whatever I, I don't know yeah so e coli is a natural occurring i mean there's many how many thousands of strains i don't know how many lots there, of strains, yeah, there's, yeah right yeah. some of them are too super safe they don't affect humans some of them are deadly yeah right and so What's this the, what is it the e coli 0157 strain that you usually hear about breaking out in the food supply yeah. causing problems yeah yeah and um You know, E. coli can come from feces, but it's also there are populations in the soil, but a healthy soil keeps those populations in check because these are pathogenic bacteria, Mm. phytopathogenic as well as humans or well as to humans. So what happens, these bacteria, certain bacteria can actually use glyphosate as a phosphorus, carbon and nitrogen source. Mm hmm. And so these bacteria actually are not affected. They've adapted to a point where they are not affected by glyphosate anymore. Even though they have incorporated or have used the shikimate pathway in the, in the past, they're able to get around that somewhere in, in that shikimate pathway to where they can now use it as a feed source. So you're killing all of the good organisms that have the mm-hmm. ability to protect the, maybe the, the macro organism that they're associated with right. or their colonies, protect them from pathogenic bacteria like the E. coli and, and strep and staph, but we're killing all of the good guys and then letting these bad guys take over and they can actually use the glyphosate as a feed source. Oh, is that true? I didn't it is, realize yeah. that. Yeah. 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 So it's and like a double they, And then they create this stuff called Cresol, right? Oh, Cre- I'm not familiar. 
they're using it as a, I guess, a feed source, as you say, but they also have a byproduct called Cresol. Okay. That is a breakdown of some of those aromatic amino acids, and it's a toxic byproduct to us as well. Cresol. I'll have to write that down and Cresol, look it up. Yeah. 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 Um, for hydroxy toluene. Is that what it is? It's Cresol. Yeah. Cresol is like the pet name, I guess. Okay. But, uh, um, and so that's, that's a toxic breakdown product that, mm-hmm. you know, is a direct result from all of that that's happening. Yeah. So as a organic chemist looking at the glyphosate molecule, what can it do? Well, the first thing you look at it and it's, as you had mentioned once, it's a little bit similar to glycine. They even call it phosphonomethylglycine. Yep. Even though it's be careful with that because it has absolutely nothing to do with glycine. Okay. Necessarily. Mm-hmm. Okay. St- Sinet, Stephanie Seneff doesn't seem to think so. But this is an ongoing I conversation. I haven't read her book, having. so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. And I wouldn't argue. I'm sure she knows way more than I do about this. But, I but you're argue. also an organic chemist that has been studying well, okay, phosphorus. But, yeah, a couple things. Well, the shikamati pathway. So I, I looked at it because, you know, you had mentioned it and yeah. stuff. And it has absolutely nothing to do with glycine. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like I could grow another head. I would be a Roger analog, but doesn't mean my chemistry is the same, right? Okay. The guy with the second head yeah. is different. It's okay. not the same molecule. That's fair. Completely different, and it may not engage in the same chemistry. Mm-hmm. So, and that's the case probably with glycine. So, but um, you do have the phosphonomethyl glycine, is what they call it, mm-hmm. because it's glycine. So, the, one half of the molecules is identical, mm-hmm. but then it's got um, a, a methylene group, so a carbon, a CH two group. And a phosphorus with oxygens on it. Okay. Okay. That's phosphate or phospho. So the first thing that you would want to notice about that molecule is that um, in context, our body, you know, phosphorus, we utilize phosphorus and almost all of our chemistry is made up of phosphate. Mm -hmm. Okay. So imagine phosphorus with four oxygen molecules attached to it. Okay. Okay. In fact, our DNA, you know, the phosphodiester linkage is a phosphate okay. linkage, right? So phosphorus with four oxygens. Yep. You can have water displacing one of the oxygens and replacing it with the another oxygen from water. So all that chemistry takes place, you okay. know, it's phosphate chemistry. Yeah. Well, when you look at the phosphonomethyl group, you have three oxygens bound to that phosphorus, and then you have a carbon bound to the phosphorus. And that's the methyl group. Okay, so that's a methyl group. So whatever chemistry that a phosphate molecule might take place, it might, you know, undertake you're not going to be able to carry out that chemistry with that methylene group, with mm-hmm. that carbon-phosphorus bond. Okay. It's not going to have the same chemistry. In fact, it's not going to be a leaving group the way that oxygen can be a leaving group from that phosphorus. Meaning that the methyl group is... It takes more, for lack of better words, to get off of that phosphorus than oxygen. It's not a good leaving group, okay. right? Um, what they call a leaving group. Yeah. Just for people and, out there. And I apologize to anybody out there. Um, I, you know, we need a chalkboard or something. Yeah. But anyway, so when you have a phosphorus, let's say you have a naked phosphate molecule, right? Like yeah. phosphoric acid. Mm-hmm. And it's connected only to oxygens. 
and then a water comes in and attacks phosphorus, and then the leaving group is another water molecule. So you can exchange oxygens. They come and go. Freely, yeah. Freely. Mm -hmm. And so the oxygen makes a good leaving group on the phosphorus. Mm -hmm. Well, when you have this phosphonomethyl group, so you have a CH2 right there, that chemistry doesn't take place anymore. So hypothetically, if that molecule, which maybe mimics a lot of biological, you know, biological molecules, mm -hmm. and it's going to engage in some phosphate chemistry, it's not going to turn over. So it may bind in a binding pocket for an enzyme or something, mm -hmm. but it won't turn over and complete the reaction that it's supposed to complete because okay. it's a different molecule. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have the same chemistry. So could this mean that that during protein synthesis, and we're not going to talk about the glycine, but could there be a happening that there's a misfolding of proteins after protein synthesis that then carry out different processes in our body due to glyphosate? Maybe, but I don't... Uh, the whole track, there was that one paper you had showed where um, they were wondering if glyphosate might be incorporated... I guess instead of glycine, yeah, into uh, the protein, mm -hmm. and I think that's and they found it probably didn't happen that way, yeah. which I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't wouldn't expect it to be incorporated into a protein at all. Mm -hmm. I would expect it to be more of a what you call a competitive inhibitor. In other words, it maybe binds to something like the enzyme goes, oh, there's there's whatever molecule I need. Yeah. And then, you know, boom, here comes glyphosate, gets stuck in there, but it's not the same chemistry. So yeah. it can't, it'll get stuck in that binding pocket where the real molecule that you actually want there. in that binding pocket can't make it in there because it's been inhibited mm -hmm. by the, the glyphosate. So, so what that, are some real life implications that when this does, if this could happen in our bodies? Well, since we're, let me just say one thing about the shikamati pathway, right? Yeah. So that, the key rate limiting step in that reaction, I cheated, I looked it up. Good. In, in that reaction yeah. though, you've got phosphoenolpyruvate, right? Which is just the three carbon thing with a high energy phosphate bond attached the acronym to is it. PEP. PEP, yeah. Phosphoenolpyruvate. And that, that is the highest, or one of the highest energy phosphate bonds in chemistry, in chemistry, in organic chemistry, right? It just, it's highly unstable. It wants to go away. Okay. And so what happens is that that phosphate donates a bunch of electron density. And so it allows, with the enzymes help, mm -hmm. <clears throat> allows, um, it allows, an, it grabs a hydrogen from the enzyme, probably from a histidine or something. Okay. And it grabs a hydrogen from there. And then what you form is this unstable intermediate. You have a carbocation intermediate where they have what you call an electrophilic carbon mm -hmm. there. And it wants so it needs a nucleophile. It wants to attract electrons. It wants to attract electrons and negative charge. Lo and behold, here's shikimic acid. There it is. Yep. Uh, a hydroxyl group sticking out just right because the enzyme positions it. And so here you have this coupling, enzyme-assisted, between phosphoenolpyruvate and shikimic acid. And you have this intermediate, tetrahedral intermediate is what they call it. It only exists for like a trillionth of a second, right? <laughs> but it's that moment in time where you have the shikimic acid and the phosphoenolpyruvate that are kind of 
bound dancing. together or they're forming a bond. One bond's breaking, another one's forming. Yeah. And at that moment, there's that tetrahedral intermediate. It's thought that Roundup mimics the shape of that particular tetrahedral intermediate. And it disrupts it. And it disrupts. So here it is. Here's, here's glyphosate stuck in that pocket right there where you're supposed to have a shikimic acid phosphoenyl pyruvate um, tetrahedral intermediate. But what you have is something that mimics that shape and it's glyphosate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so that reaction can't turn over. So it acts like a competitive inhibitor yep. to that tetrahedral intermediate. Yeah. At least and that, that's kind of the way I understood from looking at some papers. Yeah. That's the way I understood it too. And so, um, so which has, by the way, nothing to do with glycine. I know no, there's, no, that's out that's there. A different that, topic. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I know that's out there that, yeah. Um, that's the, just an ongoing discussion because I just, I've read about it and wanted to learn more to right. see if this is true. Yeah. Right. But as far as the disruption of the shikimate pathway, in plants, fungi, and bacteria with respect to glyphosate applications, the subsequent effect of glyphosate on the disruption of this pathway is that plants die, bacteria die, fungi die. Yeah. You can't produce, this is a metabolic pathway, and if it's disrupted, these essential amino acids right. are not produced, and the plant essentially dies. Yeah, The plant tries to exude, uh, degrade glyphosate into AMPA, A-M-P-A, yeah and then exude it out of its root nodules or roots into the ground to try and protect itself, but it, it's just too far gone. Right. And so what happens with uh, glyphosate-ready crops or Roundup-ready crops, GRRR respectively, is they change the, from what I understand, the DNA so that the shikimate pathway is not affected by glyphosate. And correct me if I'm wrong, but these plants are able to survive the glyphosate application Mm -hmm. It will kill all of your broadleaf plants, and that's the uh, point of glyphosate. It's a broad-spectrum broadleaf herbicide, right? and it kills these plants. And then you have your corn or your soy or your GMO wheat that then can at least survive and grow through it. But one of the issues with soybean, for example, and this is one of the uh, ground, ground up, uh, ground up, glyphosate-ready <laughs> 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 plants is that it actually affects the symbiotic relationship between the nitrogen fixation of the bacteria that we talked about earlier on the root nodules of that soybean because that's right. not a that's not a uh, GMO bacteria that's fixing nitrogen for this crop. Right. And soy needs a ton of nitrogen. I mean, it's one of the reasons why it's probably formed a symbiotic relationship with these nitrogen-fixing organisms. Right. Right. So even though these are Roundup-ready crops, even though we have genetically modified these organisms, they still have negative effects, implications of glyphosate application. Yeah. And not only that, but, you know, in soil, glyphosate mm -hmm. persists, right? There is a half-life to glyphosate. Sometimes it, we've seen it as low in some research. I've seen it as low as 30-day half-life, but I've seen it upwards of 700 days for the half-life. So that oh, means wow. for yeah. every 700 days, there's half of the amount half of the of molecule glyphosate yeah. in there. Right. And this has broad applications on the ecosystem, mm -hmm. not only on the microscopic level, but on the macroscopic level. There's even research out there that has shown that when you apply phosphorus fertilizers in the spring, it actually helps to resolubilize the glyphosate that's already persistent in the soil over oh, the winter. Really? Really? And then it can, has this... Again, has this effect and, where and it might kill phosphorus your fertilizers are they P two O five or a lot? Yeah, a lot of them are. Okay. Yeah, 
So which is like a phosphate dimer, basic what they call a dimer, two two stuck together, but yeah. With five oxygen surrounding it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I, but still same kind of chemistry though, where you have a phosphorus that is completely surrounded by oxygens. You yeah. Know? Okay. Whereas of course glyphosate isn't. So So glyphosate then can uh basically push apart or mm-hmm. not let PEP and what's the other half of the reaction? Well, the, yeah, if glyphosate is in that binding pocket of the enzyme mm-hmm. and it fits in there like it's a little womb or it's in the womb or something, it's yeah. got mm-hmm. this perfect fit where all these interactions, um, then the actual molecules that are supposed to be there can't fit in there at that moment. Okay. Right. You've got this imposter in there. And so what they do when they make these mutations, I think there's various mutations you can make. Um, I think one of them was glycine to alanine and alanine alanine has a methyl group now that that wasn't there on the glycine. Mm -hmm. And so now here's this methyl group that that gives uh, steric hindrance, what they call steric hindrance. It's like, let's say we're two atoms and we're like interacting with each other and maybe, you know, thinking about bonding. (laughs) Okay. But all of a sudden I've got a functional group on me that sticks way out in space and you can't get close to me anymore. It's like a stiff arm. That's (laughs) like a stiff arm or something like that. That's steric hindrance in in organic lingo, organic chemistry lingo. That makes sense. So, um, so you can sterically hinder that binding site so that glyphosate can't fit in that binding pocket. Okay. And maybe that's what the superweeds do when they adapt to it, too. They come up with these mutations that mm-hmm. allow to bind glyphosate it. no longer fits in this binding pocket. End of story, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. And they go on with life. I do remember that alanine playing a role, especially for these phytopathogenic fungi that can consume glyphosate as a feed source but also not be affected yeah. by it yeah. yeah so that may be happening and, and you know th- these molecules have all kinds of ways of doing this it may not only be a steric hindrance thing but it may be something that in the normal binding there's a plus charge over here from the enzyme and a negative charge let's say from the substrate and that plus minus interaction is very important but then you let's say you mutate away to something that doesn't have that positive charge anymore and you've obliterated that interaction and Mm -hmm. so the chemistry so you've your your reaction rate is now like 10 million times less and so it effectively obliterates it okay you know you have different mechanisms for that yeah so as a and you might not know the answer to this but as a human when this molecule glyphosate is not allowing this to carry out, or I should say, how should I ask this question? What are the what are the human uh, implications from this process that we just discussed? Well, the short answer is I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the longer answer is you know you looked suggested I looked at, at some papers and stuff like that, and I think the insidious thing about glyphosate is that it has so many mechanisms of toxicity. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got it binding in the shikimate pathway, presumably because of the way it's shaped. Mm -hmm. You have it, 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 nerve transmission where you have glutamate and a glycine binding site in the synaptic cleft. Mm -hmm. And it probably chelates, sorry. That's all right. It probably chelates that 
calcium there, Mm -hmm. which is a whole different mechanism of toxicity. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed in an end and then reading Stephanie Seneff's paper, it just interacts with all these enzymes like cytochrome P450. Cytochrome P enzymes, there's this whole family of enzymes. And and so it just interacts with all these different things, crosses the blood-brain barrier. So it looks to me like there's multiple mechanisms of toxicity there. So that's a difficult challenge. Mm -hmm. That's bad, (laughs) you know, as far as how do you detoxify. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't don't even know that there... Glyphosate in general is, it seems to be a new trend in conversations in the health world. Interestingly, more in the health world than in the agriculture world yep. is my observation, especially through social media outlets, which is why we want to dive into more, I guess, research-based conversation around glyphosate and not even just the potential impacts on human health or consumption of those particular plants that have been sprayed, but also what it's doing on, I guess, a larger scale to our agricultural systems and our ecosystems in general, right down to the impact that glyphosate has on soil health and soil structure. And this conversation hopefully makes more people curious about the consumption of their food, where it's coming from, how it's being treated and processed, But I did want to touch briefly, if we can, Jay, on the other impacts of glyphosate specific to agriculture. Like what's happening in the soil, with the soil. I know we've gone through some research papers on um, impacts to soil structure. And maybe you can dive a little little bit more into that if you're willing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so should I just literally read this quote i feel like it's a pretty good summary sure so in 2020 um there was a paper done by sing et al and the you guys everyone can look it up it's on the national library of medicine we'll um, post the link as well yeah uh and so this is the the excuse me the title is herbicide glyphosate toxicity and microbial degradation in the introduction Um, Singh described or was quoted by saying various physiological processes in the plants show the negative impacts of glyphosate toxicity including oxidative burst drop in the synthesis of chlorophyll hampered photosynthetic rate alteration in the level of plant hormones reduced nitrogen assimilation which is what we were talking about with nitrogen fixation decreased nutritional content of the crops disturbances disturbances in lignin and carbon metabolism. It affects photosynthetic activity indirectly by obstructing the synthesis of pigments and fatty acids. It decreases the stomatal conductance, meaning the ability for the plant to take up um, ox- or take up carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen through the little mm-hmm. pores on the underside of leaves. So that has to do with um, stomatal conductance. Decline the availability of the PS2, which is basically the photosystem or photosynthesis system. So the PS2-associated metals, which are zinc and various other metal cations, Mm -hmm. it disrupts the amino acids related to that PS2 system, which ultimately reduces its ability to transfer photochemical energy in the electron transport chain, which is what we were talking about with the shikimate pathway. 
oxidative stress caused by glyphosate is due to the overaccumulation of ROS, which is our reactive oxygen species that wreak havoc on our bodies and really any life. It uh, disturbs the mineral nutrient levels of plants. It inhibits the EPSPS synthase pathway or enzyme. Mm-hmm. It's the a synthase. Shikimati pathway. Which is, has to do with the shikimate yeah, yeah, pathway, yeah. which ultimately blocks the shikimate pathway, as it says, and results in inhibiting the biosynthesis of plant secondary metabolites, which is tryptophan. These are the aromatic compounds we're talking about, tryptophan, tyrosine, mm-hmm. and phenylalanine, yeah. which are precursors of human hormones that we need to be happy, serotonin. Mm-hmm. As a metal chelator, glyphosate decreases levels of vital nutrients, having key roles as enzymatic cofactors and biomolecular constituents. And I thought that was just a great summary of all the implications I've already been studying on the effects of plants and microbial life, mm-hmm. both in our soils, but also on us. Yeah, and I think it makes a pretty blaring point that if all this is what is occurring within the plant and therefore transferring through its roots into the soil, what is it doing to our own bodies? I mean, our our bodies, I like to always look at the parallels to plant function and how we take up and utilize particular nutrients and what happens in our bodies when certain pathways are blocked or we become deficient in one thing or we have dysbiosis occurring in our gut. Um, But just in hearing that, it just seems so obvious that this is not good. Like this can't, how could this be good for our bodies? Or not good, but how could it not be seen as bad? Or something well, negative. The evidence and research is just compiling. It's mm-hmm. just piling up. And yeah, I mean, like a tsunami. It really is. Yeah. And at some point, you know, people have to be held accountable for this. I mean, okay, but that leads me, I don't know if this is an end of the discussion kind of thing, but um, leads me to a question that I have. What if you could wave a magic wand today and remove all glyphosate from everywhere it doesn't exist anymore Mm -hmm. what would happen i mean wouldn't the corn and the soy crops collapse and and production of all these other crops that are dependent on it now likely great question (laughs) mass starvation and whatever we're just got ourselves in a pickle that we're so dependent on this chemical and and other pesticides say you're going down a road on a on a road trip and you don't you don't really have a map. You kind of know what direction you're going because of the sun and you keep on going and going and the driver or the passenger asks the driver, Hey, do you think we're going down the wrong road? Maybe we should stop and figure this out. And the driver's like, no, no, no. I know exactly where I'm going. going Just keep on going straight. (laughs) Two days from now, you're going to be in the boreal forest of Northern Canada and you're going to be shit out of luck or driving towards the cliff. Exactly. And that's kind of the (laughs) analogy I was trying to point is over the past five decades, this has had some benefits to us, just like the green revolution with the Haber-Bosch process, where we're able to have more nitrogen in our, uh, or have more free nitrogen available for our crops to grow big and grow more. Well, now we're at this place where we're like, well, you know, Herbs or um, weeds are affecting our ability to produce food and, um, you know, pests are affecting our ability to produce food. So let's just spray it all and reduce it to a monocrop agriculture. Right. Well, it worked at some, in some levels it worked. We were able to produce 
more food, but that was just through the lens of monoculture agriculture, right? Aren't you destroying your topsoil that way? Certainly. It's my understanding. I Certainly. mean, it's unsustainable, I think. It is. This is not, yeah. I mean, there is research out there that um, might, that's that, uh, how should I say this? It forecasts, rather, that within 50 to 100 years, we won't have any topsoil left. Mm-hmm. And what do we do at that point? Because we are topsoil. The carbon in that soil that has been sequestered by plants makes up the carbon-based parts of our body that oh, we how many years do we have left 50 to 100 is what they oh 50 okay we'll worry about that in 48 years <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah we're good yeah i thought it was a big problem <laughs> so at some point this has become such a a huge issue a huge talking point that there i think there will be a critical mass mm-hmm. where you know grassroots organizations and just the public will start demanding that this these um this herbicide glyphosate will not be sprayed on our lands anymore. Mm-hmm. Glyphosate is not just used in agriculture. In fact, it's used a lot on railroads. It's used on our municipality parks where your kids play on that grass that is perfect. Mm-hmm. Glyphosate is being sprayed. You'll go down the a highway as well, and you'll see pine trees and all sorts of other broadleaf plants. Pine trees aren't broadleaf, but certain broadly well plants yeah. that yeah. are desiccating and dying. And yeah. that's from the spraying of glyphosate. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I'm all for getting rid of it. Right. I'm just, what are the consequences mm-hmm. if you could theoretically do it yeah. overnight? Right? right. So it's, it's a slow transition away from this type of farming, I would think. Yeah. And, and my premise back to the energy situation, my premise is that we're going to have to do that kicking and screaming anyway. Mm-hmm. We may not do it willingly, but you're just not going to have all these fossil fuel inputs That's you know, right. to sustain this whole operation anymore. You're going to have to find more local way, ways yeah. of doing things. Yeah. So in our, or in our communities, we are tasked with the job of figuring out these systems to support the current amount of people that are here, mm-hmm. right? Because I don't, I love humans. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want 7 billion people to die over the next 20 years because all of a sudden we decided to take glyphosate away from our current agricultural system, mm-hmm. right? I wouldn't want to wave that wand. I know it's dangerous. I know it's toxic and it's killing people. But I, I guess there are, are countries, don't, don't they outlaw? I mean, maybe in Russia they outlaw they have. glyphosate. I think, and... I think a lot of Europe... Lots of Europe. Some, yeah. some of Europe. Canada yeah. just recently has a, pr- almost everywhere except the United States. I know now. France is riddled with it, apparently. Mm-hmm. And apparently, yeah. But anyway, so how do they do it? Yeah. They, right. I mean, they seem to do it without, and I mean, I'm assuming their yields are okay. Yeah. Well, and that's uh, a great point. Maybe that's where the nation needs to look if we were to reach that critical point where enough people want to see that change in our agriculture systems for the sake of our health and longevity that we then look to the countries that got there a few steps ahead of us to see what their practices look like and what their food production and that output is because I'm sure there are added challenges that being said farming organically is something that can occur like we know people right here in the valley that are growing certified organic wheat arlen Mm -hmm. um and growing a lot of it Mm -hmm. using practice using organic practices like crop rotation animals for um rotational grazing to maintain that soil health and 
he's not growing, you know, on, on a scale that monocropping would be done, but he's growing a large amount Mm -hmm. organically. Yeah. And it seems to be going okay. So maybe there's this like point of slow transition where we need to get more of the older generation farmers, generation farmers like him to begin transitioning bits at a time. Moreover, we also need young farmers to be getting into the industry. Absolutely. Because they have that long life left, hopefully, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. To actually make some real big change. And that comes with generational changes. Mm -hmm. I think so. And and then you got other problems as well, right? The younger farmers coming in that are ten tend to be small farmers. Apparently Mm -hmm. they're running up against all kinds of regulations and stuff Mm -hmm. that are usually written by the big agribusiness. That's right designed to drive them out of business you know and so there's a lot of that i think we just need to decide as a country to become more friendly to the small-scale farmer Mm -hmm. and to you know the whole regenerative process you know yeah i think we're going to need small medium and large-scale farms still right because a small-scale wheat farm is not going to be economically viable it's just not right you need especially right now in the current environment but if you could break up one massive giant monocrop into mm-hmm. 20 or 30 different small farms that, you know, do permaculture and they capture more carbon in the soil. Yeah. And, and But then we're talking about family economy, right? Or household economy. So say if you broke up a thousand acre farm into uh, uh, 50 different farms, that's 20 acre farms of wheat. And you're not going to like it's not going to be economically feasible at a household level to support a family of four or whatever mm-hmm. on that income. Right. At least with today's prices in today's of commodity mm-hmm. yeah. of wheat commodity prices. Yeah. 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 Um, now, if you can vertically integrate those farms and be then producers of value added products, then they might be possible and feasible. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where we're coming up against right now as being a small scale vegetable farm is we're trying to increase the amount of value added products that we sell to the public so that mm-hmm. we can incorporate or realize the, um, the, the revenue and the profits from being vertically integrated. Mm-hmm. That's a possibility. Right. But I do think, I really do think for the amount of people that are on this earth, we are going to need large scale farms. Now it doesn't necessarily have to be monoculture. Mm-hmm. We can have crop rotations, but corn, for example, it needs to be in some level of monoculture for it to properly pollinate. Mm-hmm. We were down at our field earlier today, Roger and, Ashley and me, and we were talking about the the pollination of corn. If you if you grew two corn plants next to each other, you're not going to get a crop out of it because it's wind pollinated. Every single little kernel of corn that is on that ear needs a pollen grain to land on its silk, on its individual silk. So some crops do want to be monocropped, if you will. Mm-hmm. But to what extent? Yeah, well, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, you can support the local people as much as you can, you know. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. do a thought exercise. Let's say you get 10000 bucks in a suitcase or something, and where, where are you going to spend that money? Are you going to spend you know, as much of it as you possibly can supporting local people and keeping that money in your local economy? Or are you just going to go to Amazon and just go through a buying spree? Right. You know. And that money or, then goes away from your community. Mm-hmm. Unless it goes away. Yeah. I mean, most of, of it goes to some CEO that yeah. is yeah. God knows where they're living, but right. certainly not in your community. And that mm-hmm. money never comes back to your community. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I like what you said about supporting local people. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we're going to have to get more 
in line of that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What we need, though, for that to happen is more <clears throat> people to get involved in agriculture. You don't have to be a farmer, actually, to be involved in agriculture. Mm-hmm. You could be a value-added producer. You could mm-hmm. be a business owner. I mean, there's lucrative, there's endless opportunities out there that are lucrative on the local scale for mm-hmm. as far as food production mm-hmm. and consumption, right? Yep. Right. You can, yeah, if you're a someone that makes fermented goods rather than ordering in the cheapest cabbage you can get that's coming from who knows where, see what local farm can grow and produce however much you'll need to fulfill your requirements for your product. And that, again, is keeping that money within our own local economy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And if you don't have mm-hmm. somebody who can grow those that cabbage out there, either try and do it yourself and hire the people to do so or try and encourage those that are thinking about to get in thinking about getting into agriculture to actually grow that cabbage next year for your mm-hmm. product mm-hmm. right i mean that's just one example absolutely vocalize yeah. a need for that yeah. yeah and you know then there's some thinking out of the box right so most people's method of when they think about investing oh, let's go put this into the stock market or buy some treasury bonds or whatever, but throw it into your 401k or whatever. And and I'm not discounting that. But the days where the stock market bubble keeps increasing are just about over, right? right? The system wants to deflate and the stock market's going to crash eventually. So just think about if you have all this money invested in the stock market and equities and stuff, can you repurpose Mm-hmm. some of that and invest in your neighbor down the street or yeah. a small farm. I'm not saying I know how to do that necessarily, but it's just food for thought, right? Absolutely. We need to rethink the way we invest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, making it more local. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, charity, help people that you know that are having a hard time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rather than sending it to some bureaucracy somewhere across the world right yeah yeah there's a lot of people right here in our own communities and in this country in general that need a lot of support too yeah yeah just not to say that all corporations are bad and there aren't some benefits to it but take a stand right Mm -hmm. you know there are many there are many soap producers out there do you really need to buy dove soap right that's one really easy solution to closing the loop into the local economy you know we we like to talk about uh or i like to talk about the velocity of money Mm -hmm. so if i had one dollar in my hand and i held it for that entire year there's only one dollar in that circulating economy Mm -hmm. but if i had one dollar and it trans uh or what's the term it exchanges to 10 different people in that year Mm -hmm. we've created ten dollars worth of value right right Right. So it's not necessarily that the dollar has an inherent worth of one dollar. That dollar can actually do a lot more. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's what saved us from some hard inflation over the last, you know, since 2008, there was that financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And they printed trillions of dollars, right? But we didn't have the hard inflation that you might have expected. And part of the reason is because the money velocity was so low. A lot of that inflation went into bubbling up the stock market, bubbling up the real estate market, you know, treasury bonds and so forth. But every bubble pops eventually. Sure does. And we're seeing more inflation now. During COVID, they they did a different tactic. They printed money out of thin air, backed by nothing. <laughs> and a lot of it went into 
into the hands of regular people. Mm -hmm. Well, mostly went to the rich guys, but (laughs) some of that money went to people in the, you know, those PPP payments or whatever. So anyway, so they flooded the economy with some money and lo and behold, boom, we've got inflation. Yeah. Upwards of seven to 8% a year. Yeah. Now, because some of that helicopter money went into the... (laughs) you know, into the hands of the, you know, the deplorables or whatever you want to call us, you know? Yeah. Um, so if they keep printing like that, which they have to, they have to inflate or die. The system dies without constant inflation. Then uh, we're going to see the money velocity is going to increase at some point And we're going to see hyperinflation probably. I think that's the end game. Yeah. We have two choices at this point, either hard deflation, like into the super great depression or hyperinflation destruction of the currency. Those yeah. are two choices at and this we, point. We saw that with the Nazis in Germany in World War II, right? They just kept on printing more and more runny, money and it got to a point, I think it was what stagflation that was happening. Yeah, you saw that for sure. You saw it after World War One in Germany and the Weimar Republic where they lost Maybe World War One. Yeah. And then all these other countries took very punitive actions against them. And they just started printing money to pay off their debts. And yeah. They said, oh, you need, I owe you a million bucks. Here you go. <laughs> you know, yeah. fresh off the printing press. They'll buy one whole loaf of bread. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So we may see some of that because um, we're just printing rec- recklessly, but that's a whole nother, mm-hmm. yeah. nother topic, I guess. Well, I think uh, we're a couple hours in, yeah. so maybe this is a good place to wrap up this episode kind of with the moral of the story being for people to put a little, maybe a bit more thought into how they're spending their money, how they're investing their money, what you're doing to support your local economy, local farms, local producers of all sorts, and um, just to, I guess, create some curiosity around the topics that we discussed today about glyphosate and pesticide use, nitrogen fixation, uh, and what that means for us, us, (laughs) for humanity, for human health. Um, Yeah. Roger, thank you so much for coming in. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Yeah. This was a great conversation and you're welcome back anytime. And we can talk about other, or have <laughs> a conversation about other topics. Talk about the economy, yeah. collapse yeah. of our society. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. I try not to be such a doom and gloom kind of guy. It, it can be hard sometimes <laughs> in this era. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. There's certainly, certainly some of that in our, in where our world's heading. So yeah. I think for now we just keep growing food. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family. It really just takes a couple of seconds. You can also leave us a review. We appreciate all forms of feedback. certainly helps us to keep our egos in check. And if you appreciate our work and want to help us succeed, please consider contributing financially. You can do this by visiting patreon.com backslash the sour dough. That's patreon.com backslash the sour D-O-E. You can also follow us on Instagram at sourdough.mt.